good to be here. Yeah. I'm driving home, so if I if I lose signal, there's like one spot on my ride home, um, but I'll just rejoin. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I know you weren't here yesterday, but uh, basically I've been going over this Missouri v. Biden case. Uh, it's a huge case about government censorship. And Tracy, Tracy Beans has done incredible work on covering what's going on with this case. And it kind of like re-kicked back up into the public consciousness because uh, AG Andrew Bailey the other day came out and basically was saying like the judge was speaking with some of the feds who are the uh, defendants in this case. And they were basically admitting, yeah, yeah, we know that it would fall under the First Amendment free speech, but it just depends on whether or not we want to uh, just depends on whether or not we want to censor it or not anyway. So like this, this case is massive. Like the Twitter files are big, but like this, this is all of it. Like, and a lot of the stuff that came out in the Twitter files is popping up in this case. So this is a big, big deal. So we're on part two um, of this. Tracy popped in yesterday and she's giving a lot of, you know, additional, you know, stuff and, and, and background on this case. She will be here probably within the hour. Uh, to kind of continue on. So I'm just going to continue going through the thread, guys. So, um, But I appreciate you guys being here. So, yeah, good morning, guys. Morning, Jen. Morning, Heather. Oh. Morning, Trash. Kind of let everybody kind of make their way in. Um, it started glitching when I went to fire up the space. It seems like every time... You know what? Yeah, good morning. It, it seems like every time you schedule a space and then go to start it, something weird happens. It gets glitchy. But this one did eventually take take hold. So I kind I think I figured it out. So if you go in, Maze pointed this out to me at one point. If you go in and you change the time or you change the name of the room, that's when it messes up. And then I realized when you start the room, if you immediately start sending DMs to people before the music starts, that's when it glitches. If you wait a minute and don't send the DMs right away and wait for the music to start, then go and send the DMs, it works. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I'll add that to my list of uh, space glitch FAQ that I have. Space glitch glitches. That's right. So perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay. Well, uh, those of you guys that want to follow along, uh, down in the down in the chat, we do have the mega thread, which covers encompasses the entire the entire case so far and her coverage of it. And I also threw it up in the nest in the jumbotron. So let me kind of just. Did you send the uh, space to Tracy trash? Oh yeah, no, I've already been talking to Tracy this morning. She's okay. got she's doing a subscriber only space um, right now. It started, so she's doing a subscriber only space. It's going to go for like an hour, I think, and then she'll be here. So she'll be here within the next hour and a half. So. Um, let me just review this real quick, guys, for you uh, to keep you up to speed. Uh, basically, what this is, is Missouri v. Biden, right? So I'm actually going to read Tracy's opening again on, on the thread that she put together. Many of you heard me discuss this case in detail as I have been reporting on it diligently for the past year. However, some of you are unsure why it is important or what it all means. This thread will serve as a summary to this point and a detailed explanation of the last filing in the case, which is a virtual handbook to government censorship based on what limited discovery has been provided so far. 
And so it looks like Heather must have hit the, the, the part where she knew she was going to drop. She'll be back in a minute. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so Missouri v. Biden, guys, this was a case that was filed on May 5th of 2022. And since it was initially filed, it has taken quite a trip through the court system. The complaint has been amended three times, with the most recent amendment being to transform the case into a class suit. And this due to overwhelming evidence of broad harm to the constitutional rights of all Americans. And also in this thread is the docket. If you guys want to go through that docket in that docket, it has all the names. It has there's like 20,000 pieces of evidence that has been produced by the government per request of the plaintiff, which the plaintiffs guys in this case are state of Louisiana, state of Missouri. And there's several other private plaintiffs as well. Um, and some of those people you guys may may recognize uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He's actually listed in this in this case. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya is in this is listed as a plaintiff in this case. The judge uh, down in Louisiana is super based. Terry Doty. Terry Doty uh, basically got a federal confirmation because he's a federal judge of 98 to zero on that vote. So he was incredibly popular. Uh, this is a Trump appointed judge as well federal judge. But his confirmation, like I said, was a 98 to zero, you know, four. So, I mean, well-respected. And this judge has not been playing around. He has not allowed the government to get away with anything. Matter of fact, interesting enough, Jen Psaki is one of the people, Jen Psaki is actually one of the people that are listed on this as a, as a defendant. And she was supposed to be deposed. And she tried to end around the uh, she tried to end around the, the, the judge and went to Virginia court to try to get herself removed under uh, extreme circumstances. And the Virginia, even the Virginia federal judge said, I don't know why you're bringing this to me. The case is in Louisiana, you know, uh, and threw it out of court. So Jen Zaki, as of right now, still is on the docket to be deposed. So we should see how that shakes out. If you got the reason that Jen Psaki's on there, as you guys remember, uh, back during, you know, uh, COVID, she was on the podium saying, yes, absolutely. We're, we are going to work with social media companies to make sure that mis and disinformation is removed from the platforms. And so she is really, I mean, with the connect, direct connection to the president, which is why this is Missouri v. Biden, um, she was directly connected with the president that was actually trying to get these platforms and pressuring these platforms to silence, ban, shadow ban, um, and remove content. And so she's part of this deal. It's at the appellate court level. And so this went through the Fifth Circuit, which is definitely a blessing, number one. Uh, and then number two, the Fifth Circuit is actually a panel of three judges. And these three judges said, no, the appellate court can look at this, but we'll We'll oversee it. And so far, the uh, the Fifth Circuit judges, the three judge panel has been has allowed this uh, Terry Doty federal judge to proceed, you know, uh, obviously under observation, but has allowed this case to proceed. They have this they have discovered that that the plaintiffs, i.e. the state of Louisiana, Missouri, do have standing. And so this case is going to trial. And so what we're going through right now on all of this is actually the uh, temporary injunction hearing. Now, what, what the plaintiffs are trying to do is to injunct the government, enjoin the government into um, stopping all censorship, all of these different NGOs, all funding, everything they're trying. Th this is what they're trying to do. 
the remedy is to actually force the injunction. And so far, this judge is letting it go through. Well, then, so fast forward, uh, when they were in, in, in court last week, uh, like I said, Andrew Bailey, uh, let me actually pull up his exact thread. He put together a little small thread. And basically from the observation from the court, it's actually his pin tweet. So if you go to AG Andrew Bailey, his pin tweet right here, as of June 1st, he says, the federal government has had a hard time convincing a judge last week that it hasn't been working with and coercing social media companies to censor free speech. Some notable moments from the first hearing in our First Amendment case, Missouri v. Biden. So the judge asked the feds if they had ever read George Orwell's 1984, pointing out the similarities between the case and the book. <laughs> the court asked the feds if all emails between them and social media companies were real because, quote, it seems like there's a lot here. Uh, the feds were forced to admit the tens of thousands of pages of evidence are genuine. So all of the documents and everything that's been entered into court record and the things that I'm going to review with you guys today, uh, the federal government has admitted that they are genuine. <laughs> so this is where this is this is where this case goes crazy, because wait till you guys hear if you guys were not here yesterday, wait till you hear some of this stuff. And some of you guys may have followed Twitter files and we have a somewhat of an understanding. And I'm going to try to do my best to kind of color in lines and give you context as we go. Because obviously this is something, this topic, the censorship, the federal government, corruption, the, the Twitter files, all this stuff. This is stuff that I, I, I spend most of my time on. So I know a lot about this stuff. Um, and so does Jen and, and Heather and Carolina as well. Who's up? Uh, the judge questioned the feds on several hypotheticals. So, that, so Judge Terry Doty was actually asking the feds hypothetical questions. And he said, if the First Amendment applied, he said, if an American citizen questioning the safety or efficacy of masks or vaccine was protected under the First Amendment. The Fed's answer, it could be, but often won't be. That was their answer, the government. <laughs> um, next, he said, it's worth remembering that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was limited by the CDC because of safety concerns. But the Fed's censored people for expressing concerns about safety. The judge asked, also asked Biden's lawyers if the First Amendment covered Americans' rights to say that Biden is responsible for high gas prices and inflation. Their answer? It depends. The judge also asked them if the First Amendment applied to Americans' rights to say that the 2020 election was stolen. Their answer again? It depends. Uh, the judge also pointed out that it seemed to be only conservatives who were targeted for their speech, asking the feds if they could provide one example of a liberal who was censored due to, quote, misinformation. <laughs> Get this. The feds provided only one example of a liberal being censored, and that person is a political opponent of Joe Biden. <laughs> so lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the court asked the feds why he should believe them when they say they claim censorship has stopped and won't happen again. And that is exactly why we're asking the court for a preliminary injunction to halt this vast censorship enterprise. The federal government cannot be trusted to protect Americans' rights, which is precisely why our founders enshrined the First Amendment into the Constitution. My office is doing everything it can to protect Americans' rights to free speech, the very bedrock of our nation. Stay tuned. This fight is far from over. And indeed, it is very far from over. Matter of fact, this case is moving forward and continues to move forward. And they're able to continue to add more evidence. So I'll kind of catch you up on the timeline here. So... As of January 5th of 2023, now keep in mind that Tracy wrote this mega thread back in May, on May 23rd, but in by 
okay, so there was a deadline where they were trying to, you know, they're trying to depose all these people on the list. And the Fifth Circuit panel came back and said, okay, well, under extreme circumstances, if there's somebody else that can speak in their place versus these high level uh, ranking officials within the government, then that person needs to be deposed, not them. And so in most cases, uh, because they're directly related, that has not been able to happen. The only one right now that we've seen that has been replaced, um, well, two people. So one of them was uh, Vivek Murthy, which if you guys know, is the uh, attorney general, <laughs> right? So during COVID, he actually had a complete misinformation, silencing disinformation um, campaign that he was using these NGOs to silence you and me and Caroline and everybody else. Our, our surgeon general, the highest doctor in the land, was censoring people that he didn't like. Um, and Rob Flaherty. Now, Rob Flaherty is actually being, was deposed. And Rob Flaherty is an interesting, interesting guy. So Rob Flaherty worked, works in the, uh, the White House uh, press secretary's office. He was in charge of digital communications. So he was the liaison between the platforms, digital communications, and the social media platform and um, the White House. He was known to be very, very abusive to these social media companies. He kind of acted like the mafia, where, you know, like the old trope, like it sure would be a shame if this place burnt down, basically meaning they was threatening these companies, these, these social media companies saying, if you don't censor and do what we ask, um, we might revise uh, Section 230 or we'll pass laws that, that will damage your business, so on and so forth. These were the threats that were being made from the White House admin to the social media companies to censor people. Uh, but Rob Flaherty specifically was the White House Director of Digital Communications. And the only other person that, that was at that level with him was, was Jen Psaki. Now, Jen Psaki, so far, is still fighting it. She has not been deposed yet. But Rob Flaherty um, is absolutely going to be compelled to do so. Uh, and then the other one that, because she was the Director of CISA, which you guys don't know, CISA is the Cybersecurity uh, Force under the D Department of Homeland Security. And... Um, I don't know why I can never remember her name, Jen. Um, anyway, she was the director of, uh, of, of CISA under the, under the Department of Homeland Security. And so she is the only person so far that's been able to get out of deposition because she's a director. So they put like the assistant, an assistant director and another person that can speak on the behalf of CISA, which has their hands all over this. Um. CISA, by the way, while I'm updating you guys on what this is, what this is, CISA has designated your thoughts as part of government infrastructure, and they call it cognitive infrastructure. So CISA's argument is that all of your thoughts and your words are part of our cognitive infrastructure in the United States government. Therefore, they have a right to censor you for mal, mis, or disinformation because it's part of our critical security infrastructure. That's CISA's argument here, which is absolute garbage, as you know. So apparently yeah, it was kind of interesting. One of the things you brought up trash was that one of the questions was like, did you censor anything? Hi, Heather. Hi, Carolina. Hi, Jen. <laughs> was like, what is it? Did they were asked, did you censor anything? You know, people calling out the 2020 election, right? Like, it's funny that you bring that up because I've been saying for years now, right? And since Elon Musk put out the Twitter files that they 110,000%, not just on Twitter, but LinkedIn too, after 2,000 mules censored all kinds of stuff. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if during the election when people were, you know, videotaping ballot mules or people stuffing like in real time, like posting this stuff on Twitter, that they probably censored it. So Elon Musk, for whatever reason, hasn't released any internal files like Twitter files that pertain to the colluded effort to censor discussions surrounding election fraud. But you just mentioned in reading the questions that they were asked, did they censor that? And they wouldn't give a direct answer, which I think we all know that they did. But why is Elon Musk not putting out those Twitter files? Did I lose you guys? Because it just went real quiet. No, I was on mute again. Um, what we're probably going to have to do is get a hold of like Michael Schellenberger, Lee Fong, or somebody else that actually has access to the Twitter files and say, hey, I need you to find me some info on you know, 2000 Mules or the election stuff. Because basically they have like a tranche of info. And they have, you know, all of this stuff. And then they go to Twitter headquarters and they work through releasing this stuff out. So it's not like they just gave him like a complete unfettered access. You have to request specifically. And so it looks to me like no one has done any work on the election stuff. So we're going to that's kind of push that we'll have to do if we want to see that stuff out there. Um, The other thing is, though, in this case, a lot of that's probably going to be included and it's going to be in there. So. We shall see. But uh, yeah, we're going to have to probably just put some pressure on the people that have actual access to the Twitter files because they probably have it. They did. It's it's like, um, what is it? It's basically the way that Matt Taibbi described it because he came into one space that I was doing on the Twitter files and he explained it. Essentially, it's like a it's like a 5000 piece puzzle and without a picture. And you just need to dig through the pieces to figure out what what story you're going to tell out of what you've got. So I think it's just going to be an appetite for doing an election piece generally. But also a lot of this is actually going to come in. Now, when you were talking about like how they were basically threatening the social media companies with like Section um, 230 or whatever, Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. what President Trump was trying to repeal or something, right? Like where he was trying to remove the liabilities that these big tech companies had over censorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's um, there's a there's an there's an addendum to Section 230 that um, was added, and it basically is giving them an additional uh, protections. But one of the biggest ones that they've been using under Section 230 is the otherwise objectionable material, right? Because it says, okay, anything illegal, threatening violence, uh, anything that would be considered a crime, so on and so forth, uh, obviously, you know, needs to be can be removed. But then they also added a small piece uh, that says otherwise objectionable. So all of these companies um, have been using the otherwise objectionable part of Section 230. If you just remove that, a lot of this would go away. But one of the things that Tracy said that was interesting yesterday is she said out of all the social media companies that are involved in this, the two that actually um, the two that actually kind of pushed back a little bit were Twitter and Facebook. But they went along with it, obviously. And then they obviously Twitter set up, as you guys saw in the Twitter files, they set up the, uh, the, the JIRA ticketing system. So it connects directly to Global Engagement Center and these different NGOs like the Stanford Internet Observatory 
and Virality Project, which was formerly the EIP, which was the Election Integrity um, Partnership. And so these are all the people that are levying like on a mass scale, like industrialized scale, censoring, you know, accounts, uh, taking down content. This is all coming from them. And they said, actually, I'm, I'm, I'll find you and I'll read it to you exactly. Because I, like I said, I'm going to go through this thread in, this, in these court documents. But it actually says they were they were questioned. And they said, if if the request had not come from these NGOs or the government to take down content, do you believe these platforms would have removed the content? And the answer was no. So basically what they're saying is, is that the only reason that all of these content and profiles and everything that was taken down, censored, banned, shadow banned was 100 percent at the at the behest of the government through NGOs and all these other different groups. They said it would not have been taken down otherwise. Which is just crazy. Um, let's see. Well, actually, it's not too far from where we left off yesterday. So, <clears throat> yeah. So here's here's this right here. I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you. This is actually where I left off. So this is actually going to be perfect. So I'll read this. So Biden even accused Facebook of quote killing people, and the next day threatened Section two thirty action on social media companies who did not comply with their demand. Now this is from the filing. Quote: They're killing people. And immediately afterward, Kate Bedingfield stated that the administration was, quote, reviewing Section 230 reform and certainly platforms should be held accountable. And that, quote, you heard the president speak very aggressively about this, end quote. In the April 20, 25th, 2022 press conference, Jen Psaki called for fundamental reforms, including reforms to Section 230, antitrust reforms. And he's encouraged that there's a bipartisan interest in Congress. She then linked these concerns to the allegation that the platforms, quote, spread misinformation, stating that our, quote, concerns are not new. We've long talked about and the president has long talked about his concerns about the power of social media platforms, including Twitter and others, to spread misinformation and disinformation. The need for these platforms to be held accountable, end quote. And as defendants helpfully note, on October 6, 2021, Jen Psaki, quote, reaffirmed the president's view that tech platforms must be held accountable for the harms that they cause and expressed that the president has been a strong supporter of fundamental reforms to achieve that goal, including Section 230 reforms and privacy and antitrust reforms, as well as more transparency. Ms. Psaki concluded that the president looks forward to working with Congress on these bipartisan issues. So what they're saying here is that the, 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 those statements from the podium, um, in the White House press corps was actually direct threats to these social media uh, companies saying, hey, if you don't do what we're telling you to do, <clears throat> we're going to we have bi bipartisan report. Uh, we have bipartisan support to reform Section 230 and we're going to take away your rights, including as and, and we may bring up antitrust lawsuits. We might remove privacy that you guys are enjoying right now. So basically she was threatening from the podium and that's why they want Jen Psaki uh, deposed. <clears throat> social media companies acted in direct response to the White House calling out the, quote, disinformation dozen. Evidence in this case provo pr proves that they acted to deplatform those branded within 24 hours of the White House publicly identifying them. Sorry, my throat is going crazy here. So from the filing, this is from Doc 214-1, and it says, thus, Saki's message was clear. 
the White House has, quote, recommended that platforms have a robust enforcement strategy that would prevent the 12 people who are producing 65 percent of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms from remaining active on Facebook, despite even some being banned on other platforms. So, again, what they're saying there is, hey, this person's banned on Instagram. Why are they still on your platform? You need to get rid of this person. So that's why it seemed like there was a coordinated effort when it seemed like, why are these social media companies like banning one person at once? It's because it was coming through these uh, these NGOs and from the government. They had a list of the of the disinformation dozen that were sent out to all platforms to, to deplatform all of these people. And that's why it happened right away. It said, moreover, Saki's public statement reinforced the private demands that Andy Slavitt. By the way, Andy Slavitt is the person who has is filling in. For Jen, I don't know why I can't remember her name, but she's the director of CISA. Um, Andy Slavitt was sent in her stead. And it says, uh, Saki's public statement reinforced that the private demands that Andy Slavitt had made in meetings with Facebook to deplatform the disinformation dozen. And this is from an email from Nick Clegg to Andy Slavitt responding to the privately voiced concern that 12 accounts are responsible for 73% of vaccine misinformation. In stating that Facebook realizes our position on this continues to be a particular concern to you. And that's an email from Rob Flaherty, who is, again, remember, the director of digital communications from the White House. An email from Rob to Facebook stating that 12 accounts are responsible for 73% of vaccine misinformation on Facebook and calling for transparent, progressively severe penalties for such accounts and urging that bans for COVID-19 misinformation should, should be cross-platform. Facebook certainly got the message after Saki's public statements it took aggressive action against these 12 speakers with whom the White House demanded that it deplatform. So you guys can see how that kind of worked. And then one of the very first actions that the White House took was directing social platforms to remove the content that insinuated that Hank Aaron died because of the vaccine. <laughs> Flaherty then went on to demand social media companies remove other posts and people from their platforms. These weren't suggestions. They were demands. And Tracy says, I would argue that the removal of this information directly resulted in death, not the opposite, as the government would claim. But that is my personal opinion. Um, I, I would agree on that personally, uh, Tracy, because there's a lot of concerns. There's people that were, you know, getting the jab that shouldn't have been um, health wise. So now here, uh, this is actually from the filing and it says, the very first email the White House sent barely two days into the Biden administration demanded not to better understand, but to remove supposed misinformation, citing a post about Hank Aaron's death after taking the COVID vaccine. Clark Humphrey wrote at 104 a.m. on January 23rd, 2021, quote, wanted to flag the below tweet. And I'm wondering if we can get moving on the process for having it removed ASAP. She requested ongoing monitoring and enforcement against future posts on the same topic. And then, quote, and if we can keep an eye out for tweets that fall in the same genre, that would be great. Rob Flaherty's first White House email to platform likewise demanded the immediate removal of content. Quote, please remove this account immediately. Cannot stress to the degree of which is filing. They're referencing actual um, uh, evidence. So they're actually citing the evidence number, the document number. So they have all of this in the filing, all of this are official and genuine. That's why I read that statement in the beginning before we started back up. 
this has all been confirmed as genuine information. This is information that's been provided by the government that was compelled by the court to do so. This is all the stuff that they turned in by January 5th of this year. So everything that we're going over in this filing, they have the receipts for. If you want to go into the docket, you can actually find all these exhibits. Uh, I just haven't gone in because there's 20,000 in there. I just haven't. But if you wanted to go look through, you could actually find these exhibits. Like if you guys want to do other stories or posts, it's all there. So continuing on, uh, one more thing. And I kind of want to get some feedback from you guys before because it's going to move on a little bit. So we'll, we'll, we'll stop after this one. Rob Flaherty legitimately did what I have highlighted here. He cursed at, screamed at, patronized, and genuinely, uh, generally abused the execs at these companies. When they did not do what he told them to do, he treated them like battered spouses and threatened them harshly. Just an evil way to behave. Um, so here's out of the actual filing. Uh, shortly thereafter, Flaherty launched his campaign of badgering, harassment, and pressure, all designed to one single end to push platforms, especially Facebook, to take more aggressive action against viewpoints disfavored by the White House. When Facebook reported to the White House on the steps that it was taking to combat vaccine misinformation, Flaherty responded with a barrage of questions seeking detailed information about Facebook's censorship practices, including, quote, how are you handling things that are dubious but not provably false? Like all subsequent questions, the tenor of these questions was not merely to, quote, better understand but to, but to scrutinize and pressure them to take more aggressive action. Flaherty drove this point home by accusing Facebook of fomenting political violence by not censoring enough speech. I'm going to read that again. Rob Flaherty, the director of digital communications from the White House to the social media platforms from Biden, says, Flaherty drove this point home by accusing Facebook of fomenting political violence by not censoring enough speech. Okay. Quote, especially given the journal's reporting on your internal work on political violence spurred by Facebook groups, I'm also curious about the new rules as part of the, quote, overhaul. Facebook again got the message. Its response explained to Flaherty that it was removing the content the White House disfavored, and it promised to begin, quote, enforcing this new policy immediately. Well, hey, so what was I'm, the time frame that they told that he said to Facebook that they weren't censoring enough free speech. Like what time did he say that? This is around, um, it seems to be around January of January of 2021. So just after basically Biden took the white house. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now there were claims earlier that were saying that this was happening under the Trump administration, but actually through all the requests, all the documents, everything that they've asked for, they could not find evidence that the Trump administration was doing this at all. I'm wondering if like, like thinking back to when I was on Facebook, like when COVID first happened, right? Like I got COVID in June of 2020, like June. Yeah. Right around June of 2020. And there wasn't a vaccine yet. Right. And I remember right. like a couple, it might've been a month or two earlier, maybe I forget the exact time frame, but there was a Facebook group that was like, titled COVID-19 survivors and in it like it started growing like to hundreds of thousands maybe even past million and not everyone in it necessarily had COVID some people just joined to see like what was working as far as treatments if they did get COVID and so there was a lot of that and a lot of the people in it were talking about using hydroxychloroquine including like and I took screenshots of all this there was one woman that had one lung. There was one guy that was like diabetic and they all attributed hydroxychloroquine to basically saving their life. And out of nowhere, one day that entire group was just gone. 
like absolutely gone. You couldn't find it. Like, I'd be curious to know if in this case, if it, it like, if they're allowed to like subpoena that kind of inf- internal information from Facebook to find out like who and when, like went in and, and you know what I mean? Like completely eradicated that group. Well, it was probably when the FDA outlawed hydroxychloroquine, when they came out and said, no, you're not allowed to be prescribing hydroxychloroquine because Dustin was trying to get hydroxychloroquine into the country. And the day that it was going through, the FDA freaking nixed the hydroxychloroquine and said that you pretty much had to use the government approved COVID treatments, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, the timing of it especially does make sense. So, Yeah, well, then there was in, was it February? So this, this is why I'm like kind of confused about, you know, how innocent was Facebook, you know, without the government's involvement. Because in February of 2020, which would have been like what, like a month after the first case of COVID in the United States? Facebook partnered with Reuters on me- medical misinformation fact checking. And they had like this sort of partnership <clears throat> that they announced. And one of the people from Reuters, like the president at the time or something, sat on the board for Pfizer. And so there was this already this little like medical misinformation collusion, like taking place with, you know, Pfizer board members. And then fast forward, Mark Zuckerberg dumped like hundreds of millions of dollars into the 2020 election, right? So like he has an agenda too. So I'm just sort of like, how innocent is Facebook really? I know like- Oh, they're not. Yeah, like, I mean, so- No, they're completely complacent. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, we have no way. Okay, so like the thing is, is that the social media companies in this case specifically- are not actually listed as defendants, right? This is against the government. So all they can do is pull records and official records from emails and requests and anything that that involved the government. Like they can't compel Facebook to do it. Now, when it goes to trial, they may be able to do so. But in this injunction hearing right now, it's it's just to enjoin the government and stop them from censoring. Now, I think that will come up, though, Heather, and I think that they probably could compel. And I'm going to ask Tracy when she gets here if, they, if that's a possibility, if they've already talked about it. But I would suspect that they would be able to compel Facebook to release those records as well. Who's um, I know I could probably look it up real quick, but who's pushing who's like the lead plaintiff on this case? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll actually help. I'll do that real quick. I'll, uh, I've got the um, it's the state of Missouri and Louisiana. The case is actually taking place in Louisiana. Um, under the fifth, uh, fifth circuit and then under the appellate court judge, Terry Doty. Now the, the, the plaintiffs in this case are a few people, state of Missouri, uh, state of Louisiana. And then, you know, let me see if I, I'll pull up the docket real quick to do, do, do parties and attorneys. Okay. So Alliance defending freedom defendants. Okay. 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 Let me get through all the, So Alliance Defending Freedom, right? That's the law and the Buckeye Institute as well and Children's Health Defense. So these are the attorneys. And then it is the state of Missouri, state of 
Louisiana. Let me pull up the main document so I can tell you. It'll tell me right up front. Now, this is through Eric Schmidt and Jeff Landry, right? Those are through those organizations that I mentioned. Um, and then the additional, let me tell you. Um, it's just showing that's weird because there's actually more people. So Dr. Aaron Cariotti is in here. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya is in here um, on the plaintiff side. And there's a few more. And then the, and then the defendants, Joseph R. Biden, Jen Psaki, Vivek Murthy, uh, Xavier Becerra, uh, Fauci, the NIAID, as well as the NIH, the CDC, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, Department of Homeland Security, Jen Easterly, by the way, that's who I was looking for. She's the director of CISA. That's who was replaced by Slavitt uh, in this case, but Jen Easterly. So she's director of CISA, obviously CISA, and uh, Nina Jankowitz as well, because she was part of the Disinformation Governance Board. So those are all the defendants in this case. Isn't this crazy? Absolutely crazy. So are any of the plaintiffs part of the like the disinformation dozen, or is, is that totally separate? Yeah, so like Alex Berenson, if you remember, um, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, there's a few. Let me see. I, I read it yesterday. I'm just trying to find it because I had it all. I don't know why it's not showing on the docket. Oh, you know what? Because it, this, the complaints have been amended. That's the original complaint. Let me find the Let me find the the amended. Here we go. That's what I needed. So, okay. Uh, Tammy Glenn, Mark Sanger, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, Jim Hoft, right? Gateway Pundit. Uh, Aaron Cariotti, Jeff Allen, a few people I don't know, Jill Hines. There's a few people I don't know, uh, but those are those are seem to be a lot of it. And then obviously Alex Berenson is part of the disinformation dozen. We know how his case went, how he actually was able to sue Twitter successfully and get back on. Uh, so that's some of the, the some of the folks, Heather. But it's mainly the state of Missouri and Louisiana. Oh, okay, so I was getting confused. So I'm friends with Ty and Charlene Bollinger, which were they're part of the disinformation dozen. And she was telling me about a lawsuit that her and like RFK Jr. Um, and stuff had. But I think it's a totally separate lawsuit. So I think I'm going to go find it real quick and post it in the nest. Yeah, that's a di that's a different one. But yeah, please do. So while you're doing that, I'll continue on here real quick. Because this is this is interesting. So if you guys remember, uh, Rob Flaherty, uh, director of digital communications for the White House and coordination with social media platforms, making threatening, abusive and threatening statements towards these social media platforms for not censoring enough. OK, so from the complaint. Uh, she says, please read these. He curses, threatens, demands, sarcastically berates and more. A lot of detail here. There was more. I did a deep dive. So on and so forth. So. By assuring him, which is Flaherty, and other White House officials, they will do more to censor more disfavored speech, quote Twitter, as we discussed, we are building on continued efforts to remove the most harmful COVID-19 misleading information from the service. And then Facebook, quote, we've expanded penalties for individual Facebook accounts that share misinformation, demanding more information on how Facebook is censoring borderline content advising Facebook that the White House was demanding information because, quote, we are gravely concerned that your service is one of the top drivers of vaccine hesitancy, period. 
And then there was a long series of questions from Flaherty to Facebook about how they reduce sensational and skeptical content, but that's truthful. You guys remember from the Twitter files, this sensational uh, and skeptical content that's truthful, that's what they were lab labeling as malinformation. So information that's accurate, but could could lead to unfavorable opinions by the public. So we can't have that, essentially, is what that was saying. Uh, long series of questions on how Facebook censoring misinformation on WhatsApp. <laughs> They've been asking about WhatsApp. Badgering Facebook for more information about censorship on the private messaging app WhatsApp. There was a follow-up email in here. That's Exhibit 77, which is badgering Facebook for more information about censoring COVID speech on WhatsApp. Flaherty demanding to know how Carlson's video was non-violative even after Facebook stated that it would label and demote it. Talking about Tucker Carlson's video. Another similar battery of questions about the Tucker Carlson and Tommy Lahren video. A long series of demands for information to YouTube on how they can increase censorship of borderline content, requesting bi-weekly meetings. <laughs> Jesus. Requesting bi-weekly meetings to discuss them. And then a barrage of demands to Facebook about borderline content that disinformation doesn't and others. Flaherty to YouTube on demoting borderline content, quote, I see that's your goal. What's the actual number right now? And that was from Exhibit 175. And then he's also here in Exhibit 191, demanding of Facebook, as we have long asked for, of how big the problem is, what solutions you're implementing, and how effective they've been. Flaherty's barrages of questions are in interpersed with abusive, sarcastic, accusatory, and unprofessional language, frequently accusing the platforms of acting in bad faith. Now, Andy Slavitt, if you guys remember, Andy Slavitt was the person that they were used under ex uh, extreme circumstances to replace um, Jen. Uh, <laughs> why I cannot remember her name. Um, anyway, director of CISA. Eastman. Thank Easterly. 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 Okay, I was kind of close. <laughs> I don't know why. Jen Easterly, director of CISA. They sent Andy Slavitt instead. He was able to be deposed on this. Okay, Andy Slavitt does the same. See example ID exhibit 55, quote, you're all hiding the ball. These are all coming from emails, guys, and correspondence between uh, Rob Flaherty and the social media tech platform. So this is coming directly from the White House. Uh, accusing Facebook of a shell game and stating, quote, this will all be a lot easier if you just be straight with us. This is Rob Flaherty again. Then Slavitt accusing Facebook of highly scrubbed party line answers. So now Andy Slavitt's joining in on this. Slavitt accusing Facebook of highly scrubbed party line answers. 100% of the questions I've asked have never been answered and weeks have gone by. Quote, the problem does not sit in the microchips land, stating that Facebook's commitment to honest, transparent conversations hasn't worked so far. <laughs> These are all emails. Uh, really couldn't care less about products unless they're having a measurable impact. And while the product Safari has been interesting, now they're going after Safari on this. This is just, this is every single tech platform. They're, they've got Flaherty to YouTube. They've got Slavit to what, Safari, so Apple. They've got Flaherty to Facebook. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. So if you guys want to see those exhibits, I believe they are in the docket. I've got the docket in the, in the, um, in the thread there, so you guys can go through that. And then he's saying Flaherty accused the platforms of fomenting insurrection by not censoring private speech just crazy and again none of this is allowed so quote quite obviously none of this verbal abuse is designed solely to better understand the issues it is designed to pressure the platforms to censor speech disfavored by the white house flaherty himself said this quite explicitly quote at the end of the day 
I care mostly about what actions and changes you're making to ensure you're not making our country's vaccine hesitancy problem worse. Uh, and then and another, another uh, here, here comes Alex, and then exhibit one of three, Twitter employees noting that the White House posed one really tough question about why Alex Berenson hasn't been kicked off the platform and that Andy Slavitt really wanted to know about Alex Berenson because he was the epicenter of disinfo that radiated outwards to the persuadable public. To achieve this goal, pressuring platforms to censor dis- disfavored viewpoints, Flaherty and Slavitt uh, interperse their private communications with thinly veiled threats of adverse legal consequences, echoing the public statements of Jen Psaki, President Biden, and Bettingfield. In Exhibit 61, quote, internally, we have been considering our options about what to do about it. This is Flaherty asking YouTube to report on how it was preventing vaccine hesitancy and working towards making the problem better. Quote, this is a concern that is shared at the highest, and I mean the highest level of the White House. So this is a quote coming from Flaherty to YouTube, obviously referencing Joe Biden or at the very least, Jen Psaki, which is Joe Biden being the press secretary. So, and then here comes Tommy Laren. So Tommy Laren, you were a hot topic at the White House. They didn't like that you spoke your mind and told the truth. Same goes for Tucker Carlson. None of this is allowed in a free country with rights enshrined in the Constitution and bestowed, bestowed upon us our creator. So from the filing, quote, this is a concern that is shared at the highest level. I mean, highest level of the White House. Flaherty sending Facebook a misinformation brief calling for progressively severe penalties, comprehensive enforcement, and cross-platform bans, and stating, quote, in the, spirits of tran- in the spirit of transparency, this is circulating around the building and informing thinking. So what he's threatening here is basically changes to Section 230. As you remember earlier, the threats of maybe possibly getting a bipartisan support in the legislature if they don't do what they tell them to strip away their, their, their rights or create antitrust uh, lawsuits or investigations. So again, remembering that in the spirit of transparency, this is circulating around the building and informing thinking. So he's talking about people are now starting to pay attention to this. And if you guys don't do what we tell you, we're going to strip you, right? Be ashamed if this place burned down, right? So Flaherty and other White House... Well, they're literally saying, Trash, that they don't want people thinking for themselves, right? Because if they started thinking, they would see that this whole thing was bullshit and then he wouldn't have his people underneath him being in lockstep. Well, right, that's right. And remember earlier, so the reason that CISA was so interested in this and what their excuse was that they gave in the deposition was that they believe that all of our thoughts and tweets and uh, words are part of the cognitive infrastructure of our national security. So our thoughts and words are part of the cognitive infrastructure. Therefore, they have a right to police, suppress, ban, or silence. Gee, that sounds speech. a lot like a cult. I mean, is this hive mind? Like, <laughs> like what's going on here? I didn't sign up for this. I know. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> But they actually said those words in court. Like, it's just nuts. Wow, that's crazy. I know. And so Flaherty and other White House officials also demand the censorship of specific speakers and content, such as posts about Hank Aaron's death, videos of Tucker Carlson and Tommy Lahren, Alex Berenson, the disinformation dozen, and many others. Hey, real quick, everyone listening, if you could retweet this space, because we're gearing up doing a lot more spaces moving forward. So we want to help spread the word and uh, bring more people to this conversation. Thank you, kindly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Please do. 
Um, looks like we're at about 300 now. It'll probably climb back up to around five, 600 where we were yesterday. Pretty successful space. Obviously, this is very, very interesting stuff. And that was actually perfect timing because now we're going to move into day two of, uh, of this injunction hearing. So it's actually perfect timing. If you guys can give me like just like two minutes to kind of catch my, uh, maybe catch my breath if you guys want to talk a little bit, uh, kind of what you're hearing. Some additional things, some additional uh, colored in the lines. I'd appreciate it. And then uh, I'll be right back. Yeah, Carolina, let's get your feedback on this. I am just blessed that you guys are touching these topics because last year, whenever we were sending the emails uh, to and from, you know, the, the CDC and all of that stuff uh, from Peter McCullough, when I was advising their lawyers on the whole Twitter shenanigans, um, I did keep a pretty close eye on the algorithms. I was able to catch all the inconsistencies, the analytics. Um, so I did report it on all the accounts that it was happening. And at the time, I believe multiple other doctors joined that lawsuit, which, by the way, it just got a slap on the wrist on Twitter. And they said no. So my concern is that my email has been tagged on all those back and forwards, you know, with the lawyers and the censorship, you know, lawsuit against the whole, you know, uh, oppression of information. So, um, of course, my account did end up getting wiped and I had to, like, restore it. And so it was crazy. Uh, I couldn't believe it. But it's, this is old stuff, you know. Um, so I'm just blessed that I can see justice and, and things coming up to light and people are actually digging into it. And what Trash is doing is probably one of the most important jobs right now. OK, I, I hate to put him on the spot like that. And um, yeah, it's one of the most important things that we all should be looking at, because, again, people were lied to. People were oppressed and censored and bringing this to light uh, definitely helps us understand how and why you didn't get the information that you did, you know, when all this time we had it. So I look at the emails and I'm reading and I'm like back and forward. Look, we provided so much information to prove CDC was in cahoots with this, that the FDA was lying, that the government was conspiring against these people. So, yeah. And like Trash said earlier, you know, I was among the group in the beginning, but we were able to uh, put everybody incognito and get everybody to, you know, uh, still continue to do uh, what they needed to do in different outlets. So it took us about 27 different platforms to get this information out. So, And thank you, Heather, because you're part of that incredible work. I remember coming up to you in person, bringing you, you know, Dr. Urso and all these other people at SAS, you know, 2020. And um, thanks to people like you guys, Jennifer warriors yeah. you know so thank you for well, thank you for all your work and honestly journalism today is, is like i mean it's it's getting so crazy to like actually be an honest reporter in today's day and age i mean i'm even sort of like still cautiously optimistic about twitter in terms of censorship and all these other platforms and stuff you know i i really don't think at any point in time, we should ever put all of our eggs in one basket. Like we're all using Twitter spaces and stuff, which are great right now. Um, but don't ever put all your eggs in one basket. There's Rumble, there's Getter, there's Truth Social. Diversify your portfolio is the best thing because if God forbid something happens here on Twitter and they start censoring, which I've already seen some of my tweets being throttled. I don't know if it's, you know, what, what the ultimate cause is. Um, but, you know, we don't want to put all of our faith into Twitter because that's never good. Um, but, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go over to Dylan. You got your hand up. Yeah, thank you, Heather. I just found out that I have a search uh, suggestion ban on my account. So I, I 
been uh, I've been being shadow banned. So the search suggestion ban is basically a like you know how when you create a Twitter account, it shows a suggestion of accounts to follow. Well, I guess my account won't show up on that. So now, now I'm like I guess supposedly shadow banned from what I found out on the uh, Twitter uh, shadow ban uh, suggestion or sh- shadow ban searcher on that uh, t- on Twitter. It's some kind of website that researches if you're shadow banned or not. But uh, well, Dylan, what that means is you won't come up in searches, right? So when people search for your name. Even like even not when when they sign up for Twitter, just like if I Jen go and search Dylan's name, that's going to be banned and people won't be able to search your name. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, Dylan, those tools I don't even bother using them anymore because a lot of the API has been stripped, which is good. But uh, what what the actual problems that we're still facing that's within the algorithm and the code are a lot of these uh, invisible tags that are being attached to your account. You cannot pull those from those uh, search suggestion or shadow ban type uh, free services. They, they won't pull those. If you remember in the Twitter files early when they were showing like Dan Bongino yeah. and many other, pe- many other people when they were showing those tags that were placed on their account. Some of that stuff is still – it's in the algorithm. It's actually automatic. So they're, they're trying to work that out. This is why when uh, – what should we call it? Dave Rubin went out to San Francisco and met with uh, Elon and they were talking about this and he was showing Dave his account. And he said, I don't know if we just burn the whole code down, code down and start over. Obviously, they're trying to fix it. It's just going to it's, it's going to take some time. Oh, okay, I mean, I got, I, I got I got I got. OK, yeah, yeah. Dylan. I, OK, <clears throat> I'm going to. Tracy's here as well. Uh, let me get to the hands. Let me get back to the thread. I want to get to day two. And uh, Tracy just joined us. Good to see you, Tracy. How was your. Uh, Members it was fantastic. Space. We talk about everything and anything in there. It was a big vaccine discussion. It was good. Yes, let's go. <laughs> I think I saw, I think I caught part of your um, your stream this morning when I was thumbing through Rumble on the way into work. And then, of course, I was talking to Caroline on the whole way in, but um, I caught some of it. That was pretty good. Thanks. That's yeah, good. Now, now, yeah. Oh, sorry. Now that we got Tracy in here, too, I'm sure she's going to have a, like a wealth of knowledge to add to this conversation so everyone listening please retweet the space so that would be greatly appreciated and we just got tracy to day two so before i get started um i'm gonna caroline had her hand up so let me get to caroline and then uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna trudge forward on day two um just a real quick thing about uh twitter censorship, shadow ban, search ban, whatever. Um, I have noticed in the last day a lot of accounts that are that I'm not able to find or are much more difficult to find. But I also have noticed that if I search for a tweet like within my own profile or somebody else's profile, like I'm wanting to refer back to an old tweet that I saw, that I'm not able to get it to turn results. Um, so I, I actually tend to, this morning I was, uh, upset to find that my account is search banned or whatever. Um, and it is like people can't find me right now, but, um, I actually think that this is probably something related to the search function generally. Um, so I don't really care why we all want it fixed. Um, but I would caution people getting like too riled up 
about it being specifically that my issue is really just that the functionality needs to be there and people need to have trust in the platform. So that's all I had. I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting too, that um, Tucker did his first show on Twitter. And one of the things he specifically mentions is that if the platform turns out to censor him, they'll go somewhere else. But right now they're doing their show here. So I think that's a, a healthy level of, you know, skepticism i guess and he's treading carefully probably after what happened to him at fox but nice to know he's committed to free speech yeah and i actually clipped so if you guys want to know the best part of that 10 minute video he put out the last minute and 24 i clipped it because that was it was so so great he was talking about how you know some people um, from the Soviet Union in the 70s came over to the U.S. and discovered that, like, holy cow, nothing that we thought that the U.S. was supposed to be like they were telling that they were telling, you know, the citizens that it's all just a race war and it's complete chaos and, and the U.S. is completely in disarray. And then he came over to find out that that was not actually the truth. And then also to that same extent, there were some American citizens during that time that went over to the to the Soviet Union. And that's when they found all this out that they were talking to people, only the few people actually knew what the heck was going on in the world because they had these shortwave radios that they hid underneath their blankets, probably from their neighbors. Because obviously, you guys remember, it was your family and friends that were turning you in, your neighbors that were turning you in for dissident behavior. But he was saying that like how how the tables have turned, how the U.S., people in the U.S. are just completely unaware of what the hell's going on. And the reason I clipped that was because, number one, we've been going through the censorship case and Tracy's awesome work on it. But it really hit home with me when he was saying that. I'm like, yeah, like, and this is why. This is why, because of this, because people were absolutely restricted from information. They were siloed into echo chambers. They were, you know, basically deplatformed or removed, but they were bringing truth. And it's such a perversion of what the United States used to represent. I thought Tucker's last bit on his show was great that he did. That's why I clipped it. I just haven't, I haven't, I haven't uploaded it That's yet. That's so but. weird that you said that. And I must have, I didn't remember that specific piece but my old boss was from the czech republic and she's like an older woman but she told me that exact thing that when before the berlin wall had came down that her and some of her friends had access to this radio and that's how they they listened to these american talk show hosts that were getting broadcast over there but like unless you had access to that like you didn't know because the media was so controlled or the like the dissemination of information was so controlled over there that she remembers always going and like listening to this little American. I can't remember who she said it was, but that it would talk about how America was free and how she had all these plans, how she wanted to go to America. But at the time, if you'd left and your family didn't make it out with you, the government would retaliate against her family. And so it sort of kept people trapped there. But it's kind of crazy that you just mentioned that because that's literally my old boss's story. And she constantly, her and I, we were supposed to have lunch this week, actually. And she'll constantly tell me like, oh man, she sees so many of the signs of like communism here today in America that she saw back over there. And it's just, it's, that's why work like what Tracy's doing and these lawsuits and us getting this information out is so important because we need to stop this from happening before it does turn into full-blown communism. 100%. All right, guys, if you guys want to follow along with me, it is kind of crazy though, Heather. Yeah, I did clip it. Maybe I will upload it because I don't, I don't know if people got to that, but that was literally like the best part was like the last minute and 24 of that. It was really great. Um, 
but so we're on day two guys uh again i love tracy's little editorials (laughs) but all right here we go so day two Uh, In one of the more immoral and heartbreaking exchanges, uh, Meta letting the government know that they heard their calls for more censorship, they decided that in response to the White House pressure, they would remove content that in their words, quote, was often true. What content groups and pages? This goes back to your question earlier, Heather. Um, And again, this is the often true. And so this is the malinformation part. This is probably, I thought, the worst. This is the worst, most egregious example where it was like, yeah, no, we know that's true. We just don't like how the public will react to that information, so it needs to be removed. It's, nah. That of the vaccine injured sharing their horrific stories and finding some community where anyone or everyone they needed for help refused to help or acknowledge them. This one needs to be vital of these poor people. So this is, again, from the filing. These, the platforms clearly understood uh, that the White House is not engaging in a mere academic exercise to better understand misinformation, but demanding that they increase censorship of disfavored viewpoints. They repeatedly respond by assuring the White House that they will, in fact, ratchet up their censorship efforts against COVID, quote, misinformation on their platforms. And this is Exhibit 64. In response to the White House asking about our levers for reducing virality of vaccine hesitancy content. Facebook assuring Rob Flaherty that in addition to the policies previously discussed, these include the additional changes that were approved late last week and that we'll be implementing over the coming weeks, end quote. Facebook here in this example is assuring the White House that it was taking steps to reduce the virality of content, discouraging vaccines that does not contain actionable misinformation. This is often true content, but it can be framed as sensation, alarmist or shocking. It says, we will remove the groups, pages, and accounts where they are disproportionately promoting sensationalized content. And then Exhibit 65, assuring that the White House, assuring the White House that the Facebook was limiting message forwards on the private messaging app, WhatsApp, to reduce the spread of disfavored messages. And Exhibit 86 and 87, Facebook is giving a detailed report on censorship in response to oral inquiries from Courtney Rowe. Facebook assuring the White House it will censor truthful, non-violative content such as discussing the choice to vaccinate in terms of personal or medical uh, preference. Go ahead, Tracy. In the uh, WhatsApp section, this is something that I went into in detail in another thread. They're literally at that point, Rob Flaherty from the White House is demanding that Facebook censor an encrypted messaging program. And Facebook is telling them, we can't see what these people are saying. All we can see is the volume of information being shared and, and you know, potentially what kind of links they are to things. So Rob Flaherty is basically saying, get inside of these people's living rooms and censor their private conversations between one another. So end to end, just like yesterday, um, Kyle was talking about end to end encryption and how they want to get rid of it. And they'll use like a stupid example of something that'll never happen. This is why, because they want to be able to censor you. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, that just now Twitter's finally doing end to end encrypted messages. I don't know if you guys have tried it yet. Uh, I've, I've tried it out, but I, I've got to be honest with you. There's nothing that I share in DM that I probably wouldn't share in public because I'm just assuming that everybody would be able to see it anyway. <laughs> like if I have conversations to be have, I've taken them off this platform. Like I talk to people personally on the phone. <laughs> and even then it's like, well, what will Verizon do, I suppose? But, you know, it's DMs should just be like a kind of like a, a mechanism for you to be able to take the conversation offline because I, I have no no misconception that they can still have access to that. Um, but yeah, it's crazy, especially WhatsApp, because it is. It's supposed to be promised to be end-to-end uh, encryption. 
and Rob doing his abusive way of doing it um, is saying, I don't care. Get in there. Now, did, did they and ultimately saying, get in there? Did they find a way around the encryption? No, no, they didn't. So you can rest assured that Facebook's uh, WhatsApp is encrypted end to end. But they did say we're going to reduce the, the spread of links and other things that they see are being shared very frequently or, or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, it was almost like they were doing it blindly unless they were able to pull that because they can't read it from the end to end encryption, but they can see where people are taking it outside the app on a link so they can just suppress that link basically. So they had no idea what they were even doing. So when does anybody remember when the pandemic movie came out? Because when Dustin and I were helping Mickey Willis, um, we were sending the link in Facebook to people to try to get the, to get it out. And we were watching it disappear out of our Facebook messages. Um, So that makes me question whether that encryption was held. And I know well, no. we build the wall no, no, no. trial. No. They no, turned no, over Jen, all... things. Yeah. Yeah. So Jen, uh, WhatsApp and, and uh, Facebook messages, Facebook messages are not encrypted. Oh, I thought you just said you Facebook want... messages. Fa- no, no, no. Facebook, Facebook owns, owns WhatsApp. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So WhatsApp is Sorry, a totally guys. different app. I use a, I use it a lot for business. Uh, all my clients are international, so it, it, I use it a lot. But yeah, no, that makes sense. Jim. We're talking about trash because I actually saw it in real life when they had the scene in 2020, which was the first documentary that we put out there. And I think this is around the time that I, I brought it to Heather way back in 2020. I want to say like September. No, no, uh, December, whenever SAS was in Palm Beach. Uh, and that's when we were seeing the disappearance. And I texted you right now some of the back and forwards when I was giving uh, the advice for the litigation for the team that was going to go after the censorship. Again, that lawsuit got a slap in the wrist. And I, there's nothing I could have done for, you know, Dr. McCullough, Bob and Corey, all those guys that were being censored at the time. So uh, go take a look at your text because that gives you a little bit of a timeline of the censorship and how we fought it back then. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely take a look. Um, okay, so I'm on, just so you know, guys, I'm on day two. I just went through that. So the second post here, uh, they also assured the White House that they would limit message forwards on WhatsApp, giving detailed reports on censorship to government bureaucrats and would, quote, Censor non-violative content and call guys um, and would censor non-violative content such as dissuading the choice to vaccinate in terms of personal or civil liberties and concerns related to mistrust in institutions. Yeah, you think? Think about this for a second. The government, the people you elected to rep you are having social media companies censor talk about your individual rights and criticism of them. And then this is from the filing. She says, we'll remove these groups, pages, and accounts when they're disproportionately promoting this sensationalized content. In Exhibit 65, they're assuring the White House that Facebook was limiting message forwards on the private messaging app WhatsApp to produce the spread of disfavored messages. Facebook is also giving a detailed report on censorship in response to oral inquiries from Courtney Rowe. Facebook, now here in this this, uh, exhibit, is assuring the White House it will censor truthful non-violative content such as discussing the choice to vaccinate in terms of personal or civil liberties so they they they're, they're going to censor that too even though it's completely true uh, true but shocking claims of or personal anecdotes so if you had a personal anecdote you uh you got an injury from a vaccine they were going to suppress anything that you were trying to say there they said no we don't want that that's malinformation people might take that wrong get rid of it how many people did they kill 
Exactly. That's exactly right. And you know what? I don't care if I'm getting hateful messages for saying it. You, that's what happened. And I'm done with you guys. I'm getting along. That's 100% what's, what happened. I coined the term. I don't know if anybody else has used it since, but censorship induced genocide is really like what it is. Because, I mean, you're talking all over the globe, millions of people. One of the reasons that Trump had moved to withdraw from the World Health Organization was because of their global response to the pandemic. So this isn't just a, you know, deadly censorship exclusive to the United States. I mean, same thing happened in Canada and all all over the globe, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask a question? I'm just, uh, I agree with you on several, several of these topics, not, not all of them clearly because I'm very pro vaccine um, and I'm not calling people anti-vax. I'm just saying, I'm, I think this vaccine is better than people think it is. Um, but in terms of going forward and um, developing medications and um trusting the medical establishment and to, to take care of people who are sick um, and uh, fixing the problems in government. I, I really mean this genu genuinely. How do we move forward so we don't, um, we don't cause incredible harm by completely destroying everything and then having to rebuild it from scratch because we've got to live through that. Right. So having lived in Poland right after the wall came down, I did see the aftermath of fascism and communism. And I think both of them are awful, awful experiences and watching people have to rebuild their society after this, this thing that they were subjected to was really tragic. So I would like to see um, going forward some constructive ideas for how to uh, fix this problem. I, I know it's a problem. How do we fix it? Accountability well, and prosecution for those well, who put this out there. Yeah. So uh, this is part of it, right? This case here specifically, the Missouri v. Biden that we're going over. <clears throat> number one, this, this, this is part of it. Number two, it's going to be dismantling these NGOs, these censorship apparatus, the Stanford Internet Observatory from having any kind of power over the public discourse. Number three, we're probably going to have to reform Section 230 a bit. Um, number four, we're going to have to get the ideologues out of the medical boards. You're actually going to have to be able to demonstrate that we are getting back to practical science again and that it's not going to become ideological. See, I believe that we have we don't need to destroy it. I believe it's already destroyed. I think this is part of the rebuilding now. Yeah, like, I, I understand. I just I, I, I'm trying to find doc doctors that are middle of the road, um, you know, sure. that, that so we can start a dialogue where, it, you know, I, I, there are very few doctors who will come onto these spaces um, and, and they feel that, you know, they're just going to get slings and arrows. And I've gotten plenty of slings and, and, and arrows and I don't mind because I think this is such a critical discussion. Um, yeah, Lisa, well, but we provided a lot of information. Trash and I have hosted you guys in many, many of our spaces where we did bring the communication. Okay. We brought Dr. Urso. We brought so many people to provide information. I just don't think you guys are willing to see it. You know, we brought okay. it to Dr. Rogers. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't. 
I really don't want to make this a back and forth about the doctors right now because number one, I'm trying to get through this thread and actually discuss this case. Yeah, but sorry, I, 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 but I did want to answer the question. And I want to get to Tracy, but but again, to Carolina's point and my point that I'm making is that <clears throat> we need to get back to the common sense, which we're, is getting a second and third opinion. We need to get government out of our medical affairs. We need to get government out, out of many of our affairs, including our day-to-day, including our public discourse. The government needs to stay the hell out of it. I haven't lost complete faith in all of our institutions. I've just lost faith in the people that are seemingly trying to run them right now. <clears throat> so a lot of this can change if we get back to that conversation where it's like, if you don't take a vaccine and you can't travel, well, that's that's not going to do. What about people with Guillain-Barre syndrome that got removed from their jobs or everything else, they couldn't take it because government was involved, not medical decisions. I think that it will go a long way if we can get back to the conversation and make sure you get a second opinion, make sure you get a third opinion, not listening to the not listening to the transportation secretary telling you, you have to go get jabbed. You have to get your sixth jab. Oh, we'll give you a free burger if you do. When I go to the, that is where the great I agree is. with everything you just said. The only thing I'll add is when I go to the doctor, I don't want the doctor to be treating me as per what the CDC tells them to do. I'm an individual patient with individual needs and an individual body that acts differently than every other body around me. And I want to be guaranteed without a shadow of the doubt the right to informed consent about every single potential treatment that is offered to me. And we do not get that right now in the United States of America. Yeah, and the right to disagree with doctors and get that second opinion. I think one thing that we can do that'll really help is in every decision we make, every law that we pass, ask one fundamental question. Does this empower the people or does it empower the government? And we are a country that is supposed to be led by the people, not by the government. And we've gradually transferred that power over to the government, either by, you know, nefarious means, rigged elections, or just by ignorance and and bad laws. But we really need to start educating people into asking that fundamental question before we support anything. And to Tracy's point, like, we don't want to take power away from the government, but then give it to, to doctors that are basically, you know, Um, going through these medical schools that have been corrupted and they come out basically sales reps for big pharma as opposed to actual doctors treating the individual patient. So that's why at the like the absolute end of the day, we just need to have as much power given back to the people as humanly possible. Not to derail Trash's uh, space, Um, just just so you're aware there is a huge dis- distance between pharma and medical schools that they're held at in- incredible arm's length. Um, and I can demonstrate that to you. Uh, I, I recommend that you watch um, uh, Ty and Charlene Bollinger did a nine part docu-series, the truth about cancer. Um, you should give that a watch and then, and, and, so, okay. But so I was, I was in academic medicine for years. So I, I, I know that everybody, well, I, both sides I think guys, part of the problem is, but I, don't, I think I don't part of the problem is, is that people have to admit that the vaccine is not as good as we think it is and that people who took it are getting sick and there are big problems with that. And that's the first thing we need to admit in this country so people can get help. Well, Liz I, or, or Lisa, I, I applaud you for being in the spaces where you're hearing alternative information. Like, I obviously, I know you're you said you, you're pro vaccine and whatever, and that's that's your choice. But I think I, like I think medical schools and i know some medical schools 
are controlled by by profits. And when you go in there, you're not. I'm very concerned about this. Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. I'm very concerned about the state of American medicine. I agree with you. I think the state of American medicine and the state of American medical schools are is is very concerning to me. But it's not just entirely uh, from the pharma perspective. It's from the whole education. Um, so and it and it is a for-profit enterprise. It, it means medical students are coming out with multi-million do- or uh, multi-hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, and so then then they are captured. Well, two things: they have to have a job. So number one, corporate medicine has taken over where private practice used to be. That's number one. Number two, the government. You're right about that. Yeah, and the government has gotten involved in healthcare by mandating insurance, which then completely screwed up a, a doctor's ability to profit. So that's number two. And number three, I just want to let you know, Dr. Dunn, you can call me anti-vax all day long. It's not offensive to me at all. I actually embrace it. So that's fine by me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but no, you, the, 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 the last thing, you're absolutely right. Met the, the practice of medicine has undergone self-destruction um, with, and, and um, the, the notion that um, the government actually has made the medicine better is actually not true. Um, it, 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 the, it, there are bureaucrats that have been embedded all the way through academic medicine into, um, into hospitals and things like that that have made it virtually impossible to practice. So doctors are in it in bad shape, and I know they're crabby, and I know they haven't been particularly nice to people. Um, but uh, I, I, I really want to try to start having a, a sensible dialogue and hearing other people's perspectives, so we can come. So we, so we don't lose sight of the actual real goal that we have in common. We want good health. We want, you know, good education. We want to be able to do what's best for our families and our friends. And I, I feel like that has gone by the wayside. Lisa, I don't know how much more we can present to you to make you understand. I mean, I was there advising, you know, people like McCullough when we had to bring to the Supreme Court to not mandate this vaccine. And the only thing that saved us was the fact that we can't force American people to do something to their body that is going to affect them after the work field. So you you have to understand that we've done our research. This is not a field that is up for discussion when people are dying and we're having to scramble up, gather doctors that are willing to enter into our arena to save people who have been damaged by this vaccine and you just can't be blind about it lisa guys i'm gonna get back on track here name go ahead and i please i'm gonna get back on track yeah that that's pretty much what i wanted to say was this isn't really like a a discussion of uh whether uh the vaccine so-called vaccine uh is good or bad or people should be taking it or not the fact is and what the space is about is how the social media and government colluded together to suppress any information of any doctors or anyone discussing alternatives to the vaccine. Uh, that didn't, and specifically to Facebook's uh, the point here, um, which this policy was literally written by Aaron Berman. I see his words in these emails, okay? The CIA man in charge of Facebook. The point is, is that they limited, suppressed, banned, censored, whatever, any discussion of any alternatives that would lead to vaccine hesitancy, including, for example, Germany banning the AstraZeneca vaccine. That was a true story. 
but Facebook banned any discussion of it because it led to vaccine hesitancy. So the point is whether or not you're pro or anti-vaccine, should government and social media be colluding together to suppress uh, discussion of alternatives uh, and especially true content. That's and I problem. will say for the record that I am completely against censorship. So I think that that's completely unacceptable for them to do that. Agreed. Go ahead, Tracy. I'm going to get back to your, to, what's your work anyway? So I guess. You can... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get, you, we'd never know any other, it would, it, it's just basically Stasi. It's, it's absolutely terrible. And so I'm glad to hear that you're against it. Perhaps um, if it were allowed to flourish, we could have not completely destroyed the medical industry and institutions the way we have, and we wouldn't even have to have the conversation. So it really does all stem from here. Now I'll be quiet. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to get back to Tracy's words, so you're not actually going to be quiet because I'm going to be reading your words to you. It's really kind of weird, a little bit, a little bit. It's kind of, it is. I I feel some kind of weird way, like I'm reading your words to you while you're here. Well, a lot (laughs) of them are taken from the filing, so that's fine. That's true. I put up in the uh, nest also uh, trash that video I keep talking about, Aaron Berman at Facebook, literally discussing what we're discussing, what's in the Missouri v. Biden about the lengths that Facebook went to to uh, limit posts and whatnot. So for reference. Awesome. Uh, I might even play that clip, actually. Let me. Um, that would be great. If you can could. you put it down. Can you actually put it down in the chat for me so I can access it on my laptop? Yeah. Thanks. All right. So the government maintains in its arguments that they were never forced social platforms to do anything. Kind of what I was telling you guys earlier, right? The old mafia trope. Be ashamed that this place burnt down. Um, However, even in their argument against all of this proves that the plaintiff's point that the government shouldn't be assisting social media platforms with any censorship activities against American citizens. Now, from the filing, um, the defendants argue, which is the government, that uh, Flaherty sought to know, quote, what the government could do to assist social media companies in their efforts to address the spread of misinformation on their platforms, end quote. Now, document 266 at 30, the statement virtually admits guilt as the White House has no business, quote, assisting private media companies in censoring viewpoints disfavored by the White House. Yet that is what the White House did. And in uh, Exhibit 214-1102, the White House calendar invite to Twitter for Twitter to brief, quote, on vaccine misinfo, including the tangible effects of recent policy changes and what interventions are currently being implemented in addition to previous policy I'm assuming uh, guidelines. And now here she says, uh, the government goes on to argue that they backed off of all of this, that there's no more COVID censorship and that it isn't a problem anymore. However, they've moved on to other topics based on evidence uncovered in the lawsuit, climate change, gendered disinformation, abortion, and economic policy. Virtually every single topic of national importance the government wants to gatekeep. They don't want popular ideas and viewpoints gaining traction so that they can continue the charade that everyone agrees with transitioning minors to the opposite gender. Everyone agrees that killing unborn babies is okay, and especially after 20 weeks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the culture war is emblazoned in everything, and it is a destabilization tool. Anyone who tells you not to consider it is one of the most important issues we are facing is unable to understand our true fight or knows or doesn't care. And yes, I 1,000% agree with that. Matter of fact, the shameless plug, I'm going to be doing a space tonight uh, with a lot of lefties about what is a woman. So that should be, uh, well, I'm probably going to get canceled or whatever. So if you guys don't hear from me tomorrow, just know 
I, I went down fighting a good fight. But no, that's a serious topic. And abortion and the gender transitioning of minors, they were all, they're already gatekeeping those topics as well. So from the filing, finally, the government argues that the White House's censorship of COVID speech is old news and that since the start of 2023, the landscape of the White House COVID-19 efforts has dramatic, changed dramatically. And then in Exhibit 53, once again, the evidence tells a different story. On the topic of COVID speech, the White House continued to demand ongoing reports from Facebook on misinformation on its platforms throughout 2022. And then Exhibit 198-99, during June of 2022, uh, Rob Flaherty demanded that Facebook continue providing biweekly COVID-19 insights reports about misinformation on its platforms so that the White House could monitor Facebook's censorship of speech about early childhood vaccines. Facebook got the message, continued to provide the reports, and assured the White House that it would expand its censorship to include speech expressing doubt about early childhood COVID vaccines, a highly controversial topic. Moreover, the White House's public statements demonstrate that it is expanding its frontiers to include whole new topics of social media censorship, such as climate change, gendered disinformation, abortion, and economic policy. So just a point on that Uh, real quick. In his deposition, Rob Flaherty actually said, well, we don't it was right around the time uh, Silicon Valley, one of the banks had had recently just failed or was about to. I don't remember exactly what, but he had said in his deposi- deposition, we really don't want um, people talking about a potential bank collapse and name. We did a space about this very thing, actually, because the more people talk about it, the more it will rile the population up and could cause us problems with national security. And one of the things that was going on was that when people were talking about this stuff on social media um, around the time where all those banks were closing up was people were talking about bank runs and whether they should go pull all their money out of the bank and kind of hysteria could take over and people could do things that they wouldn't normally do. But that doesn't mean that you censor the ability to speak about those things at all. Can you imagine? It, it's, it's terrifying. Like, we can't talk about the stability of our financial system on social media because somebody may say, I'm going to go take all my money out of the bank. Terrible. Well, and and that's the problem. See, now that you have introduced all the censorship and basically crafting of narratives, people are more likely to react in those kind of ways because of what they've seen and like how it's been narrated. So if it was just like a fire hose, people would actually be able to use discernment a lot better. But because stuff breaks through, uh, sometimes it makes it that much more sensationalized. We couldn't, it, we wouldn't have even been able to do our space cautioning people not to make that move. So it ha- would have the opposite effect, right. just like you're saying. Absolutely, yes. Yep. Um, real quick, while we're in the context here, um, I am going to play. It's a two-minute video that Name actually put down in the chat. I am actually going to go ahead and play because of what he was talking about here before we move on to the other topics. So let me play that for you guys real quick. Get set up. Now, now as you as you guys listen to this, and, and Tracy, you've seen these emails from Facebook to the White House. Uh, see if this language sounds a little familiar. We, we know who wrote, the, wrote these emails. His name's just redacted. It's Aaron Berman, CIA guy, in charge of Facebook misinfo. For some examples, we had labels on posts about COVID-19 and vaccines to show additional information from the WHO. Um, and, um, when we do remove misinformation from the platform, which I'll talk about in a second, we built a tool so that, um, we notify users who saw that misinformation before we removed it so that they have access to the authoritative information that corrects it. So that's in a, in a large bucket, our, uh, part of our informed work here. 
On remove for COVID-19, um, we do have a policy to remove harmful misinformation related to this topic. Uh, specifically, we remove content that has been debunked as false and leading to physical harm by public health experts related to the pandemic. So these are things like fake preventative measures, claims the virus doesn't exist, or um, this also includes a variety of claims about vaccines. Uh, the idea here is to uh, remove misinformation that could lead to imminent physical harm by somebody maybe not receiving appropriate treatment or exposing themselves to the disease. Um, so on vaccines specifically, in December last year, we started removing false claims about the vaccine, again, that fall within this category. And we've expanded the list of claims we remove about vaccines in general earlier this year in consultation with health experts. And we're continuing to make uh, updates to these policies as trends emerge, um, including just this week, in fact. And we also remove uh, pages, groups, and Instagram accounts that repeatedly violate these policies to get at those entities that might uh, repeatedly spread this content. And then finally, the third part of the strategy addressing borderline content, which could lead to vaccine hesitancy, which falls into the reduced area. Um, so we do reduce the distribution of certain content uh, about vaccines that doesn't otherwise violate our policies. And our approach here is really grounded in guidance that we've gotten from health experts that uh, who've emphasized the idea that overcoming vaccine hesitancy really depends on people being able to ask legitimate questions about safety and efficacy and get those questions answered by trusted sources. But at the same time, we also realize that certain of this content could could lead to hesitancy. Um, so we, we reduce its distribution. And similarly for content, for something. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, since I've been reading all of these and I've been reading the, the court filings, uh, that is almost like word for word exactly what's in these filings based on the exhibits that are being brought forth that have been requested that were due January 5th that we're going through right now, actually. So, yep, spot on. I, I'm really curious why they don't look into Aaron Berman. I mean, do they even know that this guy had a 17 year, you know, very high level career at the CIA and literally transitioned from the CIA to the head manager of misinformation at Facebook. He's the guy writing these policies in coordination with, you know, the WHO and whatever the government tells him. He puts them in place and he oversees the entire, you know, thousand people uh, department. Remember, thousands remember, of, of limited discovery, limited. It was very limited. So yeah. uh, another thing too. last thing I'll put it, we were talking about how Facebook uh, transition from COVID uh, misinformation to all these other things. And in that thread I did, you know, Aaron Berman was quite vocal about this on his Twitter account. I uh, archived all of his tweets and screenshot of them because I knew what would happen as soon as I did my thread. He would block me and make his account private, which happened within hours. But you could see after the COVID part, uh, they uh, censored uh, Brazil election misinfo, Philippines election misinfo, Russia-Ukraine war misinfo, uh, and then um, uh, climate change uh, misinfo. And he, and he was uh, very vocal and, and tweeted this out from his account, what Facebook was doing. So. And he ironically retweeted Rene DeResta. So for those of you listening that don't know, I like to talk about CIA, CIA Rene a lot. Rene DeResta seems to be in the middle of all of this between not just Facebook, but, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Stanford Internet Observatory, the uh, Election Integrity Partnership, the Virality Project. Renee DeResta has her fingerprints on everything. Good old CIA Renee. He actually you said Aaron Berman retweeted her? Yes. In your yeah, screenshot, he retweeted it right is, here. This is the thing 
which one is that? On which uh, one? Yeah. So oh, yeah, I see it. Number yeah. 16. <laughs> yeah, he says, as a current combatant against misinfo and former intelligence officer, this resonates with me. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I see that. I mean, here's the thing that the, the missing, the, the extra puzzle piece to this is the CIA's in, and the intelligence community's direct involvement and working inside the social media companies. So, of course, they're going to work and do what the government tells them, whether or not it's just coincidence that they're there or they were put there for a reason. Wasn't there right? something that came out in the Twitter files, too, about like the government actually paying the social media companies for information? Yeah, we talked about that yesterday when Twitter was sort of pushing back. They ended up paying them, I think, like $3 million that came out in the Twitter files. And I'm yep. sure they were paying everyone else, too. Yep, that's correct. And it really wasn't the money, right? It was more or less the pressure, like what we're discovering here in this case that Tracy covered. Uh, uh, the money's part of it, yeah. But it was really the pressure from the White House and the threat of legislation, antitrust uh, cases, or policy changes, or simply just re revocation of Section 230 protections. Like, that was the real pressure that made these companies do this. Tracy mentioned yesterday, and I agreed that, like, you know, Twitter, we looked at the Twitter files. I mean, granted, I'm not giving anybody a pass at Twitter or Facebook. Let me be very clear on this. But it seems like they did push back until they were threatened by Rob Flaherty and co. Uh, with threats of, you know, anti antitrust uh, lawsuits. It hurts their business uh, model, trash. Exactly. It hurts exactly. their bottom so, line. I mean, it's not really not the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Didn't seem but, like there was much pushback from Facebook. There was plenty of pushback from Facebook. There was. Okay. There's, there's lots yeah. of emails going back and forth. I was stunned by it. Like, there's lots of emails where, especially when it comes to the Tucker Carlson clip that they didn't want to take down. I mean, they really went back and forth. Okay, well, what about the COVID part? Did they push back about that? Um, yeah, because they, they kept on doing, you know, little tiny things and then they were told they weren't doing enough and they would come back and say, well, okay. if we they literally said, I'm, we're going to say right now, if we continue to censor like this, it's going to have the opposite intended effect and we should allow this content to stay on the platform because almost like they were saying it would be a Streisand effect and then that it would hurt people's mental well-being if they were vaccine injured in particular to strip their voice away from them when they were trying to talk about what they were feeling, which is why instead of just removing that content, they just made it so that nobody would see it. So people could say it, get it off their chest, but nobody would see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so that's, that's interesting. And the, and the extent to what Facebook did in censorship was they would uh, ban private groups that weren't even public. Yep. So if you were having a private group in a discussion about vaccine injury or not, that group was banned and you were banned. Yep. It, it's a very important point, Name, that you and I keep on going back and forth with. And you say the same thing every time and I push back against you as hard as I can every time. They are absolutely pressuring and intimidating these companies to do this. The companies are very reticent to do it. And eventually they end up acquiescing because of the government pressure. If it weren't for the government coming in and saying, do this, they never would do it on their own. Never. Yeah. So that actually pops up several times in this filing that I went over yesterday where it says, and there were even, even the questions that were asked, the, the direct questions of whether deposition or otherwise, if the government had not pressured uh, the, these companies, would these, would this content be taken down? And the answer unequivocally every time was no. 
I find that to be an excuse, though. Why didn't Facebook? It's not. Ex- say, but why didn't Facebook say to its followers, "The government is forcing us to censor this information," yeah, but I'm and not, then okay. let us rile against it? Yeah, that's fine. But but again, it's it's the government pressure. It's the threatening of pulling Section Two Thirty uh, protection. Like, listen, I'm not giving them a pass. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Like these social media platforms had a choice to do this or not. They caved. They capitulated. And then they participated. Like, I'm not saying that, nor are they getting a pass. I'm simply trying to actually provide the truth, not just it's very, an emotional response. It's very important, Trash, to the case itself. Because if what everyone right. out there is advocating for, like, oh, they did it on their own, there's no case. And that's so it's just not true that they did it on their own. And they capitulated to the government's pressure because the government was threatening them. Like, that's that's the whole basis of this entire case. Without the government's threats, these social media companies wouldn't have done this. And it's just true. I mean, it, it's clear as day in the emails. All right, Tracy, we're on the same page now. We're yep. good. Of course we are, because we're smart people. So, so what, <laughs> did, did I hear you right, Trash? Were you saying something like yeah, the smart. government was also, was the government pushing to censor like gender stuff as well? We're getting into it right <sighs> now. Yep. Yep, here we go, Heather. Buckle up, folks. It's going to be a very, a very, a very rough transition. All right. So, the office of there. the surgeon. Oh, I did. I totally did a dad joke. The office of the surgeon general under Murthy, Vivek Murthy, by the way, who is the surgeon general, um, got involved too, coordinating with the White House. They ran a lot of their censorship through the Virality Project, which, if you guys remember through the Twitter files. Virality Project was formerly known as the Election Integrity uh, Partnership. These are the ones that were censoring election misinfo, so on and so forth. They redid it and put it into the Virality Project, which was far more reaching across many more topics, not just elections. Um, but they also acted directly with social media companies in meetings. Um, Eric Waldo, the right hand of Vivek Murthy, was deposed in his stead. Like, remember I was talking about earlier, guys, how the Jen Easterly... Um, was so Brian Scully deposed in her stead. She was a director of uh, CISA. Same thing happened here. They said Vivek Murthy is too busy and too high of an official. We need to have somebody else depose that can answer the same questions to the to the quality that Vivek would be able to. And so this is fired, Eric Waldo, by the way. Like Eric Waldo is yes, <laughs> of course he is. Uh, the right hand of Vivek Murthy was deposed in his stead, and it was damning Eric Waldo, and that's why he's fired. Eric Waldo was listed in the six pages of witnesses that the government let go or reassigned a few weeks ago. So a a few weeks ago, as of May 24th, when Tracy put out this threat. So I'm going to read this from the filing. The Surgeon General's office joins the White House pressure campaign. The government's discussion of facts regarding the Surgeon General's office um, distorts the facts and ignores highly uh, probative evidence. OSG coordinates closely with the White House. First, the government treats the Surgeon General's activities as if they were conducted in isolation from the White House's pressure campaign. But that's actually incorrect. Dr. Murphy met jointly with Andy Slavitt of the White House and Nick Clegg of Facebook. Three days after this meeting, Facebook announced policy updates to expand penalties for individual Facebook accounts that share, excuse me, misinformation. Dr. Murphy and Waldo also met jointly with Dr. Uh, DJ Patil of the White House and Nick Clegg of Facebook to respond to health advisory. Eric Waldo was routinely included on emails and calls with Rob Flaherty and social media platforms. Waldo communicated directly with Flaherty before speaking with Facebook. 
The Surgeon General launched the Health Advisory in a joint press conference with the White House. OSG connected Facebook with DJ Patil and White House to discuss giving researchers access to their platforms, I'm assuming. Uh, let me see, make sure. Facebook certainly understood that the OSG and the White House were working in tandem because Nick Clegg met with Dr. Murthy to better understand the scope of what the White House expects of us on misinformation going forward, end quote. Uh, when the White House said they're killing people, Clegg reached out to the Surgeon General to, quote, find a way to de-escalate and work together collaboratively. And when they're saying they're killing people, they're talking about misinformation accounts and, and social media platforms, FYI. Following the pressure from Saki and Biden, Facebook reported to Dr. Murthy and OSG on the additional steps that was taking to censor disfavored viewpoints, such as, quote, adjusting policies to remove misinformation and steps taken to further address the disinfo dozen, expanding the group of false claims we remove. So Clegg also told Dr. Murphy that referring to the White House, we hear your call for us to do more, and we're committed to working together for our shared goal of helping America get top of this pandemic. OSG and the White House personnel are routinely included on the same email threads, jointly communicating with platforms about misinformation. Exhibit 370, Facebook is jointly reporting to the OSG, and then it goes in about the disinformation dozen. So this is, again, more just more collusion directly with the social media platforms and the pressure campaigns from the government. Now, the Surgeon General demanded a set of actions in regards to censorship and platforms responded under duress. Again, this is what we were just talking about, where essentially these platforms were, were operating under duress based on the threats of antitrust lawsuits, legislation, or stripping of Section 230 altogether. Murthy described disfavored viewpoints as, quote, an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health and said of social platforms, quote, we are asking them to consistently take action against misinformation super spreaders on their platform. You guys remember the super spreaders? <laughs> uh, this wasn't assisting, quote unquote, which would be illegal. Additionally, he stated, quote, we can't wait longer for them to take aggressive action because it's costing people their lives. And again, what costs people their lives is the censorship. Agreed. Now, real quick, let me go back to the super spreaders. The super spreaders information is not the COVID super spreaders. What I'm talking about is in reference to this, the Stanford Internet Observatory and the uh, Kate Starbird Washington group, where they were talking about how a, how a tweet or, or a post can go viral and the stages that it goes, right? So it goes through a, a little bit medium account that, like, say, retweets it. And then that then a larger account picks it up and retweets it or comments and it and, and, and starts to build this visibility. And then once a large account grabs it, it then shoots off in the algorithm into the side into the sky. And that's what's known as a super spreading event um, of a post. Like I said, if you go, go back to the Twitter files, you guys can look through this. The Stanford Internet Observatory mapped this out. So did Kate Starbird and, and the University of Washington. They, they went through all of this. This is what they're talking about. It's how posts can go viral and it's damaging to their narrative that they're trying to maintain and contain. So that's what they're talking about here. Um, and then in the filing, uh, the general's health advisory demands a long series of, quote, particular actions on censorship from on the platforms. The advisory and the public attention associated with it placed economic pressure on the platforms to comply with these demands. In Exhibit 272, in announcing the advisory, Dr. Murthy described disfavored viewpoints as an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. 
and that social media platforms poison our information environment. <laughs> he stated, expect more from our tech, we expect more from our technology companies and we're asking them to monitor misinformation more closely. We're asking them to consistently take action against misinformation super spreaders on their platforms. He stated that, quote, much, much more has to be done by platforms and we can't wait longer for them to take aggressive action because it's costing people their lives. Having publicly accused platforms of costing lives, the advisory makes a long series of specific demands. It calls misinformation a, quote, serious threat to public health and states that platforms have a moral and civic imperative to stop the spread of misinformation. It blames social media platforms and their product features and algorithms for the spread of misinformation. Again, that's what I was talking about just a second ago. It calls on platforms to take a series of specific actions, including, quote, implement product designs and policy changes on technology platforms to slow the spread of misinformation. Man, imagine, Nobody's imagine, asking. If they, imagine if they had that same drive to shut down the spread of child porn. I, I, Heather, you're like, I swear, you're, a bur you're, you're like the same thing that I brought up yesterday. This is what I brought up yesterday. I said, while they have spent all of this time combing through social media and, and, and flagging 50,000 points a post a day, sending them to Twitter and Facebook, not a single child porn account was taken down from Twitter. Shocker. There's a so I just put up in the uh, nest. Uh, this uh, from Kanakoa's thread on all this, uh, the actual screenshots from the report from the Election Integrity Partnership and how they ranked accounts, mm -hmm. uh, you know, super spreader or whatnot by the amount of followers, retweets, likes, yep. and if they leaned right or left. So take a look at that. And also, Tracy, I bet you're about to bring up that article that came out just a little bit ago, aren't you? The Wall Street Journal, yes. Yeah, that was, that was disgusting, how it was basically facilitating, you know, people that were looking up child pornography hashtags with people actually selling child pornography on Instagram. Yeah, they were using some of the words that we've all been told are just absolute crazy talk, like um, map and uh, pasta pizza. and pizza, you know, the ones that mean nothing in the yeah. grand scheme of life. You know what I mean? Oh, um, yeah, well, so funny. I, I keep bringing this up, and I'll never forget it. When Matt Tybee first started doing the like so one of the first rounds of Twitter files, and I was watching him post them in real time. So I'd just refresh, and there'd be another tweet, and refresh, and there was another tweet. There was one where they, they posted an email, and one of the emails they forgot to censor. Either they forgot or they deliberately didn't censor it so that they could get it out there. But the email, I swear to God, I took a screenshot before they went back and deleted that specific Twitter file, was jack at zero dot pizza. And to this day, I'm like, why is no one talking about that? Because one thing, right, when Ben Swan, who's an Emmy award-winning journalist, did that whole segment on Pizzagate, and they tried saying that he was crazy, oh, pizza doesn't mean child trafficking, whatever, he basically at the end of his segment says, let's talk about it on Twitter. And it started going viral on Twitter. So there's one example of Jack Dorsey knowing that pizza is associated with child trafficking. Secondly, there was child porn running rampant on Twitter for years and years and years until Elon Musk bought it. And it went uncensored, unfiltered. And then all of a sudden, Elon Musk drops a Twitter file and Jack's email is jack at zero dot pizza. Like, I'm sorry, but that's a little creepy. Um, it's very strange. It's very strange. And, you know, look, that could be a whole space in and of itself, right? I mean, we could talk about that for hours and hours. Um, I, I actually had two points. The other one, not to completely go off topic, but 
it was never once in this communication that the government's having with these social media platforms and the public are they ever thinking who gets to determine what's in misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation? They just automatically portray that they're the arbiters of truth, and we know that they're not. And even Rand Paul, in a in a Fauci back and forth, had said that at some point. Like, we don't we trust the American public to be able to discern what's true and what's false. We don't need the government to tell us what's true and what's false. But they assume that they're the arbiters of truth. Remember uh, in the video you played uh, trash of uh, Aaron Berman, that one line that he said is we add labels to uh, certain COVID uh, posts so that you and then we would tell users why we add the label to make sure they know the, quote, authoritative information. So they took, you know, once they had the battle you know, and, and finally capitulated and went along with the government, Facebook, uh, you know, basically promoted uh the quote authoritative information from the the health authorities who cdc and they just went and that was the truth yeah and and, and again um i'm never going to be in the business of trusting the government to tell me what's true and false uh, for for a couple reasons but i'll just cite the constitution the constitution the bill of rights the freedom of speech was not a right that's given by the government it was designed to protect us from the government that right there is the only argument I need to not to determine that the government is not going to be the arbiter of, my, of truth to me. Sorry, just not. And our, we had a responsible media at one point that were supposed to be able to hold our government accountable and report on these on these things. And they have now co-opted it into the cult and uh, they are the mouthpiece for the government. So, again, that's why what we're doing here, that's why what Heather and Tracy and many others name and many other people that are doing uh, the independent uh, journalists that are actually trying to hold people accountable. That's why we do this, because this is where the truth is coming from. So with that said, please retweet the space. <laughs> we got to keep asking because that's how we grow. That's right. That's right. Well, and also, Mario. yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'm here. <laughs> I would never be over there. We'll just put it that way. Americans for the win. Yeah. <laughs> retweet retweet this space because it's an America first space. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and, and real quick, uh, just so everyone's clear about what's truth and what's not, the government came out and said, and d- d- basically they could not deny that all of the documents, all of the emails, all of the transmissions, everything that's been collected in evidence in this case, they could not say it was not genuine. They did say it was. Therefore, everything that we're reading in this filing, everything that we're discussing here, is not, it's not conjecture. This is not a subjective point of view. These are documents that were provided per request in this, in this injunction hearing, and the government said, yes, they're genuine. They provided a lot of it. So, um, yeah, that is the truth. And then, so the government's not telling us the truth. We had to ask for it. And even then, they're still holding stuff back. We know this. We know how they treat FOIAs and everything else. Anyway, that's off topic, but just wanted to be clear. So we just went over how censorship is actually costing lives and talking about super spreaders. Misinformation super spreaders are different from the COVID super spreader narrative. Misinformation uh, super spreaders are kind of what the Stanford Internet Observatory and Kate Starbirds of the world were actually um, being able to graph out and show how content uh, basically took off or goes viral or how a 
how a piece of content can be sensationalized and go viral and how it's harmful for the narrative they're trying to maintain to protect but isn't that the, the same uh, group that did the the wall street journal piece that same the Which? observe what is it you said the observatory one the stanford internet observatory? yeah i'm pretty sure that's the group that did the i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure the wall in the wall street journal piece the thing on instagram and how that whole child trafficking network thing i'm pretty sure it was them that did the, the research it is it. yeah 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 ironically it was them Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I just made that little connection. <laughs> I'm actually going to look further into that a little bit because I my eyes have been on SIO and uh, virality for some time, even around before the Twitter files. Yeah, I'm so. pretty sure it was just three people, too, because one of the things they said in the Wall Street Journal piece is that if they were able to unmask this operation with the limited resources that three of them had access to, than an actual regulatory group for the social platform itself could probably unmask a lot more given they have access to more of the information. 100%. So we're going to be doing that as well. I have so much to, I haven't even gotten to the Twitter file supplemental that dropped yesterday. Like I haven't even gotten there yet. Because there's so much. All right. Uh, the list of ways that the government colluded with, threatened, and acted as an arm of social media companies when it comes to censoring speech is miles long. Here's another example. Murphy and Waldo et al. Uh, reach, reach out to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Google with demands, and all of the companies respond with how they diligently complied in the face of regulatory retaliation. This is what we were talking about earlier. So the OSG, as you guys remember, connected with the, it's the office of the Surgeon General. So in private, the OSG asked major platforms to report back on what is new and additional steps they were taking to censor disfavored, by the way. It's very important, that word, uh, viewpoints in light of the advisory. Dr. Murphy himself asked Nick Clegg of Facebook to do so. Quote, on the call with Dr. Murphy, he mentioned seeing if you were able to send an update of any new additional steps you are taking with respect to health, health misinformation in light of the advisory, end quote. In fact, Waldo noted, quote, we are asking all platforms for this type of update, and we requested a report within two weeks. These requests went to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Google. From what I understand, YouTube, Google, one and the same, gave zero pushback on any of this stuff. Um, Facebook, some, but not as much as, say, Twitter did, but even so, they all complied. Um, the platforms responded. Two weeks later, Facebook provided a long list of new actions to crack down on, quote, misinformation. This included five bullet points and four sub-bullet points listing specific new policies and enforcement actions, as well as detailed actions taken against the disinformation dozen. And in Exhibit 381, Google emailing Waldo to report new actions taken against misinformation. Facebook also provided a detailed report to the Office of the Surgeon General and the White House on its policies and actions taken against misinformation on childhood vaccines. Facebook continued to report back to OSG on censorship until defendants, the government, produced OSG's documents. So that's crazy. Uh, Murthy went so far as to put out an official RFI, which is a request for information to the social media companies demanding information on their censorship policies and how they were enforced, as well as detailed information on disfavored speakers. This is unbelievable, but their hubris has gotten the best of them. Yep, I agree. I said that yesterday. Uh, shortly after uh, Dr. Murphy issued formal requests for information, the RFI seeks detailed information from technology platforms about their censorship policies and how they're enforced. In Exhibit 415, it also sought detailed information about disfavored speakers on social media demanding, quote, information about sources of COVID-19 misinformation, including information, quote, about the major sources 
of COVID-19 misinformation associated with exposure, where source refers to speakers on platforms, i.e. specific public actors that are providing misinformation. Uh, that would be me. I was in the, I was on those lists, by the way. That's one of the reasons that one of my seven accounts was banned, actually. I found that in the Twitter files. So that was fun. And then Tracy was no longer a Russian bot after the Twitter files. I was so sad that day. <laughs> I cried too. <laughs> all, all throughout this brief is detailed document, documentation of the partnership between these institutions and the private taxpayer-funded organizations they used to do their dirty work. Yeah, the NGOs. Um, a particular interest here is a virality project and Stanford Internet Observatory. Okay. I am mentioned in the Twitter. Oh, here it is. <laughs> Tracy is mentioned in the Twitter files due to the SIO report. They tried to dissect and discredit my legal analysis and failed. All right, Tracy. Uh, Virality Project touts its close relationship with the Office of the Surgeon General. The Virality Project states that, quote, federal government agencies served as coordinators for national efforts. Virality Project built strong ties with several federal government agencies, most notably the OSG and the CDC, to facilitate bi-directional situational awareness around emerging narratives, end quote. Oh, God, just, just let me just read that series of words again. This is this is coordinating with OSG and the CDC to facilitate bi-directional situational awareness around emerging narratives. These people are LARPers, not not to mention that they're just completely evil, but they're just LARPing. They just the 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 the, the air of self-importance to use those kind of words to suggest our speech should be controlled in a bi-directional situational awareness of emerging narratives that are going against what we want people to believe. It's just disgusting. Um, Exhibit 1279, the Virality Project states that it, quote, provided strategic insights to government entities such as the OSG, CDC, and the Department of Health and Human Services. Contrary to defendants' representations, the Virality Project claims that it hosted the same-day rollout of the Surgeon General's advisory, quote, Stanford Internet Observatory and the Virality Project also hosted Surgeon General Vivek Murthy for a seminar on vaccine mis- and disinformation, including the rollout of Surgeon General's advisory on health misinformation. So we learned this earlier in the filing where the OSG, Vivek Murthy, had this disinformation initiative. And this is actually the advisory panel on misinformation. So this was Vivek Murthy was brought in under the Biden administration to do exactly what this is right here. It seems to be that's the only job that he seemed to be doing um, as Surgeon General. Uh, the Surgeon General's messaging echoes verbatim the Virality Project's message of demanding, quote, transparency and accountability from platforms on censorship and demanding data sharing, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I don't remember uh, writing oh. blah, 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 but if I did, I'm really smart. It's from the, it's from the filing. It cut off. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like from platforms and censorship and demanding data sharing and a cutoff. So I couldn't see it. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. <laughs> I'm loving it. So here we learn more about the absolutely tragic web of public private partnerships. Yep. Executing the censorship enterprise. The government is trying to argue that they closed up shop again, but public testimony and other information obtained during discovery begs to differ. I agree. This one, guys, is stuff that I've been banging on about when I've been doing this for two days. Here we go. I wish Jen was here for this, too, because this is stuff that her and I were going after. So this is everything that I've been talking about. This is like the funding uh, through the DOD to Graphica, Atlantic Council, uh, the DFR uh, lab. This is Virality Project. This is EIP. 
This is SIO. This is Washington Center for Employment. Oh, my God. So defendants contend that the Virality Project has not been active since 2022. This statement is at best misleading. The Virality Project is simply another moniker for the ongoing election, election integrity partnership, actually, is what it is, not project, in which the same consortium of censorship entities, I example, Stanford Internet Observatory, University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, Graphica, which is DOD funded, guys, and the Atlantic Council's uh, DFR lab, Digital Research Lab, that was from another Twitter files drop, by the way, performing the same censorship activities, cooperating with the same partners and using the same surveillance and censorship techniques and methods. This project continues to operate under the EIP moniker. For example, in a July 31st, 2022 blog post, the EIP stated that the EIP is continuing its nonpartisan and collaborative work in the 2022 election cycle. The EIP briefed that Brian Scully in 2022 and, and indicated that they, quote, they were going to do something similar with what they did in 2020. Yeah, we know. And then on July 27th of 2022, good old CIA Renee DiResta gave congressional testimony indicating that the consortium plans to continue its censorship activities into 2024 and beyond. And so doing nothing during the hearing, they were asked if they were going to do this again in 2024. And they did not. They basically admitted they were. They told the judge they were. Yeah. So. That's just crazy. So doing nothing is not an option. Well, yeah, none of this has stopped. It continues to this day, uh, not so much on uh, Twitter, yes. but 100% full throttle on uh, YouTube and uh, uh, Facebook. Well, YouTube, it, YouTube just removed their policy on election misinformation. And there's a lot of... Yeah, a little too late. <laughs> uh, yes, there's a lot of speculation as to why they did that. Some people are saying, oh, they did it because they want to be able to claim that Biden had the election stolen from him. If he loses, um, other people are saying that it's because of this lawsuit that they did it and because of the private suit that's coming for them uh, that I talked about yesterday. Yep. So I think Tracy, that's I also what... want to report to you guys that yesterday, as a result of your space, I shared simply a post on Facebook, my professional page, which has been shadow banned since 2020, that, um, you know, my page has been shadow banned and now there's proof. And then in the comments, I provided a link to all the evidence and the things that you guys have been tracking. And guess what? Thousands of people have seen that particular post, yet I've never had more than 300 over the past two years because of three years. Amazing. Because of the shadow banning. Right? Wow. So surprising they're letting that through. Because it's their out. And and listen, I'm sorry, Trash. Yep. This is the thing that the solicitors general said this too in the interview that I did. They said they are they're going to have a problem because if they stand up and say, oh, yeah, we did all this on their own, they're going to lose their Section 230 protection anyway. So they're at a a crossroads, these platforms with either they're going to point the finger at the government or they're going to take all this on themselves and they're going to lose their protection because they're outside of the bounds of Section 230 if they're actually doing this stuff on their own volition. So they have a vested interest in defending themselves on this. And it actually raises questions. So uh, Jim Jordan and the Weaponization Committee have taken a lot of flack. And I have been also one to do so. I'm like, why are we talking about the FBI right now? I know where this is coming from. And the FBI is the least of my concerns at this point. Yes, they've been weaponized. Yes, that's fine. But why aren't they talking about big tech? And it makes me wonder if these these uh, social media companies realize that they are in deep shit and that they're starting to walk all this back, allow this stuff through 
and they're maybe quietly talking because I know that Jim Jordan, one of his biggest donors is, is big tech as in Silicon Valley. So like I initially attributed that to, oh, he just want to piss off his donors. But I just wonder if there's conversations in the background saying, all right, you know what, since we have control of the house and we're probably going to gain more seats, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have favorable outcomes with Section 230. But you're going to have to unwind a lot of this stuff. And we are going to have to point to the Biden administration, so on and so forth. It just makes me wonder if that's their play here. Yeah, I mean, they could they could wind it back now, but the damage has already been done. They've sure. achieved their goals of mass vaccination and whatnot. So they can roll it back now. But listen, I'm not. And, and, and again, yeah. I'm not giving them obfuscation. That's not what I, again, I have to preface this. That's not what I'm saying. They are 100 percent culpable. They are behind all this. And I'm the American people should be pissed at them. I'm just looking at moving forward why they're doing what they're doing. And it has to be, I think, regardless, related to these cases that are coming up, specifically this one. This one is this one has all the Twitter file stuff, plus all the other stuff that they had to get specifically from the government. This is crazy, crazy stuff that's in this case. It's why I've spent two days on it. It's why Tracy spent months, a year on this stuff. This is a big boy case, guys. And tons of money. This uh, just so everyone knows, uh, Tracy pulling these documents from Pacer and whatnot costs a lot of money. I remember because I used to do it uh, when Trump got elected on all those. I'd be pulling so many. I get a bill for hundreds of dollars. And I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? So Tracy's spending a lot of money on this, too. Yep. Thanks, Nate. I got a I got a DM. Someone said, ask Tracy about the injunction. Whatever that That's what yeah, we're doing. Okay. That this is the in- that's specifically yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, this 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 is the injunction. Like they're trying to get the injunction, right? So the injunction would be that the government ab- abstains from all censorship and doing all uh, of what's associated within these documents. Uh, Tracy so could probably explain like it better. A, than I sort can, of like a like a restraining order against the government so that they're not allowed. Like they have to seize doing that. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the injunction. Yes, exactly. The injunction is to stop them from doing all of this stuff. So that they can get to trial without them continuing to harm the American people. Um, and the government was arguing, well, an injunction is really to st- to preserve the status quo, not to stop action. And they lost in that argument, too, by the way. So, you know, it's 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 to stop them as this trial progresses so that people aren't um, harmed without any recourse until they get a verdict. Or further election interference. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm honestly like just basically getting briefed on this case thanks to this space. So just a couple of questions. So has the injunction already been issued and it's just being litigated? No, they did the hearing to get the injunction last gotcha. two weeks ago. And we're waiting on the decision now. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And to, to, put, to put a finer point on that for, for, for you, Heather... Um, this this judge, so he's getting. <laughs> I didn't do that, but thanks, Heather. Uh, this judge uh, is ha- is going to have to be very, very. So I'll get you caught up from yesterday. This judge is going to have to be very, very careful how number one he words this, number two how he decides for this to go, because he's got the Fifth Circuit bring it breathing down his neck. Now, the Fifth Circuit is a panel of three judges, and they've been kind of overseeing this a little bit. And they have been fairly favorable, allowing Judge Terry Doty to kind of do what he needs to do. They give him advisement. But but again, this he's going to have to be very, very careful. That's what Tracy was talking about. We've been waiting for a couple of weeks now for the decision on the injunction. Like, it's going to take some time because he's going to have to write this correctly. He's going to have to do this 100% correctly so the Fifth Circuit can't kick it out. 
I don't know if you muted, but go ahead. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So how okay. soon do we anticipate him making that decision? Is it sort of just in limbo right now? It could be any day. It could be a week. It won't be too slap in the wrist and I did a dad joke. The office of also wanted to do so. I'm like, why are we talking about the FBI right now? I know where this is coming from. And the FBI is the least of my concerns at this point. Yes, they've been weaponized. Yes, that's fine. But why aren't they talking about big tech? And it makes me wonder if these these uh, social media companies realize that they are in deep shit and that they're starting to walk all this back, allow this stuff through and they're maybe quietly talking because I know that Jim Jordan, one of his biggest donors is, is big tech is in Silicon Valley. So like I initially attributed that to, oh, he just want to piss off his donors. But I just wonder if there's conversations in the background saying, all right, you know what? Since we have control of the house and we're probably going to gain more seats, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have favorable outcomes with Section 230. But you're going to have to unwind a lot of this stuff. And we are going to have to point to the Biden administration, so on and so forth. It just makes me wonder if that's their play here. Yeah, I mean, they could they could wind it back now, but the damage has already been done. They've sure. achieved their goals of mass vaccination and whatnot. So they can roll it back now. But uh, listen, I'm not. And, and, and again, yeah. I'm not giving them obs uh, obfuscation. That's not what I, again, I have to preface this. That's not what I'm saying. They are 100 percent culpable. They are behind all this. And I'm the American people should be pissed at them. I'm just looking at moving forward why they're doing what they're doing. And it has to be, I think, regardless, related to these cases that are coming up, specifically this one. This one is this one has all the Twitter file stuff, plus all the other stuff that they had to get specifically from the government. This is crazy, crazy stuff that's in this case. It's why I've spent two days on it. It's why Tracy spent months, a year on this stuff. This is a big boy case, guys. And tons of money. This, uh, just so everyone knows, uh, Tracy pulling these documents from Pacer and whatnot costs a lot of money. I remember because I used to do it uh, when Trump got elected on all those. I'd be pulling so many. I'd get a bill for hundreds of dollars. And I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? So Tracy's spending a lot of money on this, too. Yep. Thanks, Name. I got a, I got a DM. Someone said, ask Tracy about the injunction. Whatever that That's what yeah, we're doing. Okay. That this is the that's specifically yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah this 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 is the injunction, like they're trying to get the injunction right. So the injunction would be that the government ab abstains from all censorship and doing all uh, of what's associated within these documents. Uh, Tracy so could probably almost explain like better a, than sort I of like a like a restraining order against the government so that they're not allowed like they have to seize doing that. Yeah, the, the injunction. Yes, exactly. The injunction is to stop them from doing all of this stuff so that they can get to trial without them continuing to harm the American people. Um, and the government was arguing, well, an injunction is really to, to preserve the status quo, not to stop action. And they lost in that argument too, by the way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's to stop them as this trial progresses so that people aren't um, harmed without any recourse until they get a verdict. Or further election interference. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm honestly like just basically getting briefed on this case thanks to this space. So just a couple of questions. So has the injunction already been issued and it's just being litigated? No, they did the hearing to get the injunction last gotcha. two weeks ago. And we're waiting on the decision now. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. 
and to, to put to put a finer point on that for for, for you heather um this this judge so he's getting <laughs> i didn't do that but thanks heather uh this judge uh is ha is gonna have to be very very so i'll get you caught up from yesterday this judge is gonna have to be very very careful how number one he words this number two how he decides for this to go because he's got the fifth circuit bring it breathing down his neck now the fifth circuit is a panel of three judges and they've been kind of overseeing this a little bit and they have been fairly favorable allowing judge terry doty to kind of do what he needs to do they give him advisement but but again this he's going to have to be very very careful that's what tracy was talking about we've been waiting for a couple of weeks now for the decision on the injunction like it's going to take some time because he's going to have to write this correctly he's going to have to do this 100 percent correctly so they the fifth circuit can't kick it out i don't know if you muted but go ahead if yeah, that makes, yeah, that, no, that, that makes accurate, sense. That makes sense. Okay. So how okay. soon do we anticipate him making that decision? Is it sort of just in limbo right now? It could be any day. It could be a week. It won't be too, too much longer. I don't think it's a, it was, it was set for an emergency injunction almost a year ago. So we're already way far ahead on the timeline. Um, I don't think he's going to take too long to do it, but he's going to do it carefully. Yeah. Yep. I hope that answers any questions that were coming through um, for everybody. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So what's so assuming that injunction gets passed, like what's the enforcement mechanism going to be? Uh, the court, remedy? A court order saying you can't mm -hmm. do this or you'll be in, in criminal contempt of court. Okay. And so then if they censor or do something like that, then people can bring it forth. Yeah, they can say that they've, you know, they've violated the court order. And since there'll be ongoing discovery throughout, um, it's going to be really hard for them to communicate the way that they were doing because the whole of government will be under a discovery order. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not only just the whole of government, but also the NGOs that are involved with this as well. Yeah, they deal. should honestly just drag this case out beyond the election <laughs> just to keep it open. <laughs> well, as long as we can get the injunction. Yeah, like get the injunction, but then keep it open post 2024 election so that at <laughs> any point in time you can start bringing them back in. It will well, be. It will be. It right? will be. Yeah. 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 So this is great. But this case is landmark. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, I'm not trying to blow this thing. Like, I'm actually. I'm actually shocked that a lot of people haven't talked about this until now, but really I think it was uh, Andrew Bailey, the AG Andrew Bailey, his, his tweet uh, triggered a lot of people that are having co this conversation to look at this case. It's what made me look at this case again. Like I remember it existing and I, I've been watching Tracy like tweet the stuff and I was reading it and I was just like, in my mind, I know that I was thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, there's, this is going to get shot down like everything else. But then as I looked into it, I'm like, wait, this Terry Doty judge is pretty based and he's not letting this thing get shut down. Matter of fact, he's doing everything he can to keep this going. So this judge. I, is I've told Tracy, we, we've talked about this um, and thankfully she's, you know, the main one covering this and just hammering at it. Uh, and she's doing an, an amazing job. But this is bigger than the Twitter files. The stuff we're learning through this case alone in discovery and the emails is is in my opinion bigger than the twitter files no it's twitter fi yeah no the twitter files are simply just coloring in the lines on some stuff that's a very very small piece of this this is so okay so so between 
the work that we've covered, like that you've covered name that I've gone over and, and dug down deep into, right? The Office of Director of National Intelligence, the Bill Ebeninas of the world, the world, uh, Shelby Pearsons of the world, uh, coming through the Aspen Institute, the Atlantic Council, um, all the censorship that was an apparatus that was built up in the DHS and CISA, all of these systems, we're seeing actually how they worked in real time. So not only do we know who's involved, but now we know how that how it works. And all of this is coming up in the case. So the Twitter files is just Twitter of the end of the end result of communications from this apparatus. This case is the whole thing. That's how big this is. Yeah. For, for one example of what you said is, you know, in Twitter files, we saw emails between Elvis Chan and uh, Yoel Roth and whatnot. But through Missouri v. Biden, we have a 300 page deposition of Elvis Chan where he actually admits and names a lot of people and admits to a lot of things and how things were working at CISA. And then you have uh, Brian Scully from CISA, also another three, 400 pages deposition, you know, admitting a lot of stuff. That's why this, uh, to make it understandable for the audience, that's why Missouri v. Biden is so important. Yep. All right. Let me uh, go here. So, and not to be outdone, of course, the CDC gets involved because of course they do. Uh, it is the same laundry list of issues, every agency doing the same thing, censoring you for sharing your thoughts and information on social media. <laughs> what I didn't have on my censorship bingo card was the Census Bureau. Good Lord, guys. Yeah. So uh, under, under Section C, the CDC and Census Bureau conspire with platforms on censorship. So the CDC, quote, proactively flags disfavored speech for censorship. First, Defendants admit that the CDC, quote, proactively alerts Facebook, Twitter, YouTube about false COVID-19 claims the agency observed on the platforms that could adversely affect public health. This includes the fact that the CDC, quote, received biweekly summaries in what were called crowd tangle reports from Facebook about high volume COVID-19 content circulating on its platform. Defendants admit that the CDC repeatedly flagged posts for censorship. Uh, to the CDC by both identifying trending topics and providing lists of sample posts. Um, uh, in in uh, Doc 266 at 59, and they admit that the goal of such flagging is to be sure that people have critical, credible health information, i.e. to suppress information the CDC, CDC views as non-credible. There is overwhelming evidence of such flagging activity. And this is... Uh, there's some slide decks and uh, exhibits that are prepared by the Census Bureau. The and understand Census the purpose Bureau. here wasn't to... Yeah, right. The <laughs> Census Bureau, guys. I just can't. It's I can't get over that. I, it's ridiculous. Like, it's, <laughs> like we've seen, what, what, what do you see? What do we see recently that came out of what? The Department of Energy that had nothing to do with energy? What was that? Sam Bryan? <laughs> No, not Sam Britton. <laughs> no, 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 no. Something just came out recently that has nothing to do with the Department of Energy. It leaked. Oh, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'm sure I'll remember. Because I was just like, why is this coming out of the Department of Energy? I think that somebody in the administration is leaking Biden stuff and they use the Department of Energy to do so. So understand the purpose here wasn't to provide the public with information for informed consent. The sole purpose, the only purpose of this was to push... Uh, was the stop to uh, vaccine refusal. They wanted every single person vaccinated. 
And when Facebook asked the CDC for information in regards to several posts on the platform, CDC responded, it appears that any of these could potentially harm, uh, potentially cause vaccine refusal. Again, there's that malinformation stuff again. Uh, there isn't talk of whether the posts were actually accurate, just talk of or factually accurate. It's just the talk of what they think the result of people reading these posts will be thinking. And then so this kind of goes back into, again, uh, where this was. Look, there's, we've kind of talked about this stuff that's in the filing, but let me just look through it real quick. The Census Bureau. <laughs> so ridiculous. All right. Defendants argue that when responding to Facebook, CDC did not instruct the company to remove or take any other action against posts or users promoting claims that CDC concluded were false and hazardous to public health. So that's what the defendants are saying, that they did not instruct. But the whole point of these inquiries was for the platform to outsource to the CDC its decision on whether or not to censor specific health claims. And the CDC knew that and embraced the role. For example, Crawford understood and was, quote, happy that the CDC's information would cause disfavored viewpoints to be censored. I'm happy that providing the scientific information led to the le less spread of misinformation. Crawford admits that the CDC's input would determine how Facebook applied its content moderation policy. Quote, I know that they're using our scientific information to determine their policy. Facebook openly stated that his decision to censor claims about childhood vaccines was, quote, a, as a result of our work together with the CDC. So, again, it's just showing you more proof that the government's arguing that they didn't instruct, but it's obvious that they did. And then it says at the very bottom, the Census Bureau used platforms misinformation reporting portals. <laughs> so the CDC even used the that used the platform's own tools to report accounts for censorship. They had, they had accounts and could log on to report things that they wanted action taken on. So how the government tried to weasel an explanation of this one, quote, we no longer meet with these platforms very much at all, judge. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. So they're using the portals and they downplay the Census Bureau's involvement in the CDC's censorship activities. Both claims are incorrect. Facebook evidently gave four Census Bureau employees and contractors access to its, quote, COVID-19 misinfo reporting channel. Likewise, Census contractor uh, Christopher Lewitsky uh, emailed Twitter to ask for access to Twitter's misinformation reporting channel, the Partner Support Portal, for a long list of Census employees and contractors. Using these portals was consistent with Census's past practices and platforms. The CDC also asked Facebook to give the census personnel access to CrowdTangle. The Census Bureau and its contractors, rather than CDC officials, were submitting reports through the special misinformation reporting portals. The CDC continues to engage in censorship of health-related speech. Defendants contend that the CDC no longer has regular meetings with any social media company except for Google, and it has no regular or direct communications with any social media company about misinformation. But in fact, defendants admit that the CDC engages in ongoing activities regarding misinformation. Quote, CDC has some occasional indirect contact with personnel from social media or technology companies that may relate to misinformation. CDC also funds and attends conferences that discuss misinformation and infodemic management. <laughs> uh, here we go. Here they discuss the CISA and its switchboarding activities where multiple employees would simultaneously intern or vice versa with EIP and Stanford and take active role in censorship via the help desk. So think of it like as a hub, right? They are the, the help desk and switchboarding is what they're calling it. 
So switchboarding. Defendants admit that during 2020, CISA engaged in extensive switchboarding activities to flag disfavored content for censorship to platforms. Defendants try to frame CISA's switchboarding as merely a passive activity, relying heavily on pre-printed boilerplate disclaimer in their email to platforms, which only seem to appear during the Trump administration. Uh, defendants contend that it would, wait a minute, relying heavily on pre-printed boilerplate disclaimers in their emails to platforms in parentheses, which only appears, seems to appear during the Trump administration. So this was, so once Biden took over, they didn't even need to do these disclaimers anymore. It's basically what they're saying. And they just kind of went full force. Is that what I'm reading correctly? Well, well, the point was, uh, this was ahead of the uh, 2020 election, I think. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, defendants contend that it would, quote, leave it to the companies to make decisions based on their terms of service. Even if it had been purely passive, CISA's switchboarding would still be the butt for cause of censorship. As Scully admits, quote, if it hadn't been brought to their attention, then they obviously wouldn't have moderated it. This is what I was talking about earlier. This is where Brian Scully admits that the government's role, um, had they not put pressure, had they not requ- made these requests, had they not had, you know, Flaherty made these demands using these portals, if it hadn't been brought to their attention by the government, it never would have been moderated on these platforms, meaning these platforms wouldn't have taken it down under their TOS. Yeah. Further, CISA's switchboarding was not merely passive exercise that the defendants portray. It involved active lobbying of platforms to remove disfavored content. Scully, jeez. Oh, Sorry, there's a banner that's popped down. I guess Trump's arrest is imminent or indictment is imminent from Jack Smith. What a joke. Um, Further, CISA's switchboarding was not merely passive exercise that defendants portray. It involved active lobbying of platforms to remove disfavored content. Scully commonly performed such fact-checking for platform to support CISA's request for censorship. This included both doing open source research and affirmatively obtaining information from state and local officials to, quote, debunk social media claims to platforms. In doing so, CISA always assumed that the government's official account, not the private citizen's account, was accurate. Uh, So this is CISA being able to control exactly what they're doing, and they're using it through local and state uh, accounts as well. The government continuously tries to argue that all this behavior has been stopped, except what we know about only stopped after this groundbreaking lawsuit was filed. Defendants contend that CISA stopped switchboarding after the 2020 election cycle, but Scully testified that CISA's decision to stop switchboarding was made late April or early May of 2022, just after the filing of the lawsuit. (laughs) Thus, CISA suddenly decided to stop switchboarding once the practice was challenged in this lawsuit. So there's evidence here at uh, Exhibit 77. They're admitting to the decision to stop switchboarding in April or May. Hale's declaration does not dispute this timeline, and it does not dispute plaintiffs' longstanding insistence that CISA decided to stop switchboarding because of this lawsuit. In fact, through the filing of the plaintiff's supplemental brief in February of 23, uh, CISA continued to proclaim on its website that its MDM team serves as a switchboard for routing disinformation concerns to appropriate social media platforms. In addition, once CISA stopped switchboarding, it took careful steps to ensure that the same flagging activities would occur through other channels. In the spring and summer of 2022, Lauren uh, Protentis urged platforms to prepare, quote, one-pagers for state and local election officials and lobbied the platforms to ensure that they included instructions for how to report misinformation. (laughs) 
on that vein, um, Trash, I just put a tweet in the nest. Um, you know, they're doing this a lot. There's actually another time where they stopped doing something they were doing and changed their website as a direct result of the discovery in this case. That tweet is up there. If at the end you want to go back, it has to do with Schellenberger's reporting and Mike Benz and, and those guys. So it's just up there for you when you're done. Yeah, great. Yeah, perfect. Um, if it's Mike, and then I, I've seen it, so I'll probably go through it as well. You did that back in March. Cool. Sure, Justin, yeah. he's got his hand up. Sure, Justin, go ahead. No, hey gang, I was just going to give you a quick update on my lawsuit in conjunction with this. Where I'm hoping at the end my case will meet up with uh, the other one there at SCOTUS uh, on the same theme. Uh, just as quick background, I'll give you the one minute overview, which was my account on Facebook, my account on Twitter was taken down right around the time of the infamous July 15th presser uh, with Jen Psaki and Vivek Murthy where they decried social media companies who weren't taking down stuff fast enough. Uh, and so we think it got caught up there. My lawsuit was filed um, shortly after that in August in conjunction with the Liberty Justice Center. Uh, I had a, a great sort of trajectory. I think mine was filed right after Alex Berenson's was filed. We took a different tact. We had a great judge here in San Diego, but Facebook and Twitter convinced the judge to move it to the U.S. federal court there in Northern California. And it was assigned to Justice Breyer. No, not SCOTUS, retired Breyer, but his brother. Uh, and believe it or not, he's actually one of the good judges on that court, but he still didn't give me the time of day uh, until all the FOIAs came out from the Twitter files and the FOIAs that we had as well, which they dragged their feet on. Uh, he wouldn't give us the time of day. Uh, the recent issue was we, uh, we had amended um, our complaint. He rejected that with, under some crazy pretense. And so we are appealing that. Now, the FOIAs that I've gotten back, just the, the, there's three big key highlights that they revealed. One, we were the first ones to show that they were indeed having weekly, if not biweekly, uh, uh, they were having uh, these BOLO meetings, be on the lookout meetings, where as you described, we have, you know, here's a type of tweet that we want taken down, right? Now, what's curious is it actually included the URL of the tweet, so we can go, and the Facebook and Instagram uh, files, and you can decode those to figure out which accounts like those. And almost without fail, all those accounts are gone now, right? So there was definitely like, we're just using this as an example, but they would absolutely take it down. The second really interesting thing from the FOIAs we had was that Facebook basically felt compelled to give the CDC and the FDA some, I think it was $10 million in free advertising. It was almost like a shakedown. And the recent revelations from Alex Berenson's lawsuit, where you have the Twitter lawyers talking internally saying, we think there's a 50-50 chance that we win this case. But more importantly, we think uh, that you know it's more important that we keep the government happy. I think that's the defense you're going to be seeing used by Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies who are saying, hey, look, here's Jen Psaki, here's Vivek Murthy threatening us over the White House, White House pulpit. Why wouldn't we give in to that, right? And then the, the third one was a big cozy relationship with Vivek Murthy and VP of Facebook, Clegg, and some of the revelations that are coming from that. So um, I'll be revealing some more. I've just gotten some more FOIAs back recently, uh, but hoping that under appeals, Mine will end up right there with uh, Missouri there at SCOTUS. We'll see what's going on. 
Oh, awesome. Thanks for the update. Yeah, a lot of what you were talking about is in this case. So it should be interesting to see how that moves forward. And, and good luck, Justin. I appreciate the update. Because uh, this stuff, and, and and again, I think this goes back before Justin, you were in here, Tracy and Name and myself were talking about, <clears throat> and Heather, that uh, <laughs> this is... Um, this is so much bigger and far reaching and what the implications are of this and how it appears that these social media companies, someone had mentioned, uh, who was it? Angela, Dr. Angela mentioned that, that all of this stuff was actually getting reach again on her Facebook account that had been so shadow banned and suppressed. And she was posting a lot of the things that were coming out. Cause this is part two. We did part one yesterday and it was saying that it was starting to get reach again. So it just makes me question, like, with these social media companies, which obviously were doing this under duress and pressure. And I, listen, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for them. But I'd be interested to see where this goes, because it seems to be that, that the hold is actually breaking here. So good luck on that. Um, oh, uh, here we go. The government also claims that CISA had nothing to do with EIP, the Ele Election Integrity uh, Partnership. But through discovery in this case, we learned that the EIP was formed to be a gap between what the government could get away with after pushing the envelope and what a private org could do. The problem is the government can't do through a private org what they can't do officially. Yeah. And this is the stuff I was talking about with the NGOs and the censorship apparatus was that uh, they're using these groups to kind of band-aid and do extra constitutional things. Trash, yeah, there's actually video of Alex Stamos on a Zoom call admitting this yeah we like we played it before remember yeah it's crazy um, i know actually you know what matter of fact i'll go pull that thread from your i can go find it if you want to keep reading it yeah drop yeah, it. that's a good okay. one to play because they literally yep. in real time all right give me a minute they couldn't even believe what that they admitted it like they did in that clip he found it's he's like well we're yeah. gonna i mean it's so against the law trash it's completely against the law well, they just felt like they've been operating with impunity. They thought that they had the power within the government and no one's going to challenge them. No one's going to stop it. No one's going to leak it. Heaven forbid. Don't you guys all believe that this is what we should do as responsible Americans? Like that's their attitude with this. I just added it to the uh, uh, bubble at the bottom. If you want to play it. Hey guys, I I'll just, um, Catherine Engelbrecht is just up here now as a speaker. Uh, her and Greg Phillips were the ones behind 2000 mules, which we all know was hever heavily censored across all social media platforms. So thanks for joining us, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> I, don't, hey, I don't know how hey, familiar friend. she is with Twitter spaces, but if you hit your little microphone, you can unmute your microphone. We'll give her a minute to figure out the microphone situation. Trash, uh, you want to play that, uh, Alex Stamos? Clip? Can you hear Heather talking name? Yeah, I can. Okay, perfect, yeah. I'll play it while Catherine's trying to figure out the microphone. So let me, uh, where is it? It's kind of a pain uh, between spaces on, I can't wait till we can actually use spaces on the computer. Do you want me to DM it to you? No, I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get it. It's just, a, it just takes a minute because you can't access, access, access spaces easily on computer. I'll get it. Oh, there it is. I recognize it right away. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. So this is uh, Alex Stamos basically telling you exactly how they use the EIP internal workflow and how they specifically are doing what we just read and outlined in this case. So let me get that going. 
make sure my volumes are up because I know I remember if I remember correctly, this clip is kind of low. So bear with me. This is not because CISA didn't care about disinformation, but at the time they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation was operating. So because of the feedback uh, and the ideas from these, uh, this group, um, we were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government cannot do themselves. The cooperation between government and tech platforms has been very effective in this. These institutions put together have probably read, what, 60 or 70 papers over the last 12 months um, talking about the outcome of those takedowns. I think the two challenges here are, one, how do we maintain this, right? The federal government wasn't prepared to identify and analyze election mis and disinfo. There was no clear federal lead to coordinate the work because the IC, of course, is rightly limited to a foreign focus, and the FBI also has very specific designations and limitations. CISA had created support but had no real capability. There were unclear legal authorities, including very real First Amendment questions. There were unclear legal authorities, unclear legal authorities. The old CIA <laughs> Renee. <laughs> Yeah, for those of you that don't know who that was, that was uh, Alex Stamos talking about basically, yeah, so we, we created this deal so we can do what the government can't do and we can assist them in doing extra constitutional things to American citizens. We totally like it. It's totally legit. We're just going to brag about it on camera. Oh, and then, you know, CIA Renee comes in and she says, well, you know, obviously we, we're not allowed to be doing this and, and, and the intelligence community is supposed to be foreign focused and so CISA got creative and then da 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 It's just... It's just sick. And they're just bragging about it on camera. That's why they tried to say it was Russia. That's how they got into our social media. They thought it, well, they blamed it on Russia so they could spy on us all. Well, yeah, if you remember the Global Engagement Center, right? The collection of like nine different agencies interoperating through the Global Engagement Center. And basically what they were doing was they were have, they'd have these tranches of American citizens, but they would be including them in foreign disinformation, quote unquote, uh, propaganda. And they're saying the Russians or the Hindu nationalists or whatever it was. And they were including the Americans in that so they could actually do. They were saying that they were doing foreign focus and oops, American citizens got caught up in this. Oops, our bad. But they were using that as a shield and a mask to actually go inward and to do what we're outlining in this lawsuit right here right now. It's disgusting. And so, so again, I just read that. I just, we played that clip and I read Tracy's commentary. This is from the filing itself. The Election Integrity Partnership uh, defendants contend that CISA, quote, had limited involvement with the EIP. On the contrary, CISA's involvement in the EIP included at least one of the following. One, the EIP was formed to address, quote, a gap and government surveillance and censorship activities that CISA identified to its Stanford-affiliated interns, which is Stanford Internet Observatory. Number two, CISA interns originated the idea for the EIP. Number three, CISA had a series of meetings with Alex Stamos and Rene DiResta about forming the EIP before it began, including one meeting listed on the EIP's operational timeline as, quote, meeting with CISA to present EIP concept. Or number four, CISA connected to the EIP with the Center for Internet Security, which runs, is, it's a CISA, uh, CISA program. Additionally, while they claim again that they have shut all of this down, high-level CISA official, uh, officials 
Brian Scully testified in a deposition that they have widened their net to even conversations happening in the U.S. about the banking system, war in Ukraine, and racial justice. A truly Orwellian censorship monster operating under the flimsy excuse of protecting, quote, national security and the safety of Americans. If you aren't sufficiently outraged yet, you should be. Well, if you're not outraged, you haven't been paying attention. And if you're not outraged, I'm totally sus of you. <laughs> so... Um, Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General reported late in 2022 that CISA, quote, counters all types of different disinformation to be responsive to current events, end quote. Leaked Department of Homeland Security documents indicate that CISA is expanding its counter disinformation efforts to address, quote, orange of the COVID-19 pandemic, efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of the U.S. support to Ukraine. Scully confirms that CISA has initiatives targeting misinformation about vaccines and the war in Ukraine. Scully believes that, quote, the unified coordination group about the war in Ukraine, which included members of CISA's MDM team, communicated with social media platforms. Scully confirms that CISA is working with the Department of Treasury to address misinformation that undermines public confidence in financial services and financial systems. Hale's declaration confirms that CISA engages in disinformation work regarding COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, and financial services industry. In late November 2021, Director Jen Easterly stated that, quote, I am going actually going to grow and strengthen my misinformation and disinformation team. If you guys don't remember, this is Jen Easterly, director of CISA. Easterly makes clear that she interprets CISA's mandate to protect, quote, infrastructure to include cognitive infrastructure. I was talking about this earlier, guys. They're, they're making the argument that your tweets, your posts, your thoughts, your words are part of a national security protection of cognitive infrastructure. Therefore, they should be able to censor, depress, suppress, shadow ban, or just outright ban. Restrict Act. Restrict Act, yeah. Jen Easterly, head of CISA, actually said the following. This is a direct quote. It is, quote, really, really dangerous if people get to pick their own facts. She wanted to organize CISA to act as the coordination point for all agencies. Read that again, Trash. Yeah, I maybe I should. Yeah, maybe I should. You're right. So Jen Eastley, again, guys, she is the director of CISA, actually said the following, and this is a direct quote. It is, quote, really, really dangerous if people get to pick their own facts. I'll let that breathe for a minute. Yeah, it's, uh, that's pretty bad. <laughs> it's horrendous. And she wanted to organize CISA to act as the coordination point. So, right, like they're the they're the hub for all agencies, hence the disinformation governance board that was disbanded. By the way, if you guys don't know, the disinformation governance board was, in fact, not disbanded. They're not calling it that anymore. They've moved it to the FMIC, the Foreign Malign Influence Center, which, again, our friend name on the stage here did great work on exposing the FMIC which was funded under the National Defense of Authorization, Authorization Act. So that is a permanent fixture in our government that's going to continue funding unless we just happen to get the right people on, on Capitol Hill to say no. <laughs> so Yeah, I think that the funding under the NDAA for the uh, Foreign Malign Influence Center was good for, I believe, uh, eight years. So it comes up again after two election cycles. Yep. And by then it'll be forgotten about unless we keep banging on and talking about this and we can break this thing open. So just keep it up, folks. Share this stuff. Make sure you're telling everybody about it. 
Tell people that don't care, that just want to watch 90 Day Fiance and drink box wine. Give it to them, too. No offense to anybody that does that. Just saying. Everyone, everyone, it's spread on uh, Twitter, but, like, it's not going mainstream. I've written about it, and this uh, reporter from The Intercept has written about it. That's it. And then it just sort of gets lost. But it's it's alive, it's uh, it's active, and... They're doing what the disinformation governance board uh, uh, was shut down. It's it's the same thing, but under a foreign, you know, this guise of foreign misinformation. Yet, as we all are aware, anything that we post that uh, they don't agree with, they label it as Russia disinformation. Therefore, it can be banned. Yep. And um, yeah, so, uh, OK, so I'll read this one more time. It, uh, Jen Easterly, who is the director of CISA, says, quote, it's well, really, I, I, I really dangerous. What's that, Heather? Oh, I might have been on a mic, a hot mic. Yeah. Um, so real quick, Jen Easterly. Director CISA, really, really dangerous if people get to pick their own facts. That's <laughs> crazy. She wanted to organize CISA to act as a coordination point for all agencies, hence the Disinformation Governance Board that was disbanded. Now is now the Foreign Malign Influence Center. It hasn't gone anywhere. So November 2021, Director Easterly stated, I'm actually going to grow and strengthen my misinformation, disinformation team. She makes it clear that she interprets CISA's mandate to protect infrastructure is cognitive infrastructure and that it is really, really dangerous if people get to pick their own facts. <laughs> On February 26, 2022, two months before this lawsuit was filed, Easterly's private text messages with Matt Masterson state that she believes CISA is, quote, looking to play a coordinated role so not every department and agency is independently reaching out to platforms, which could cause a lot of chaos. Her text messages also state that DHS is planning to, quote, look at potential new areas for, for confronting mis- and disinformation. Ooh. What, so we're getting up on to Tracy real quick while you're here. Uh, the next section is a deep dive into the nation's largest law enforcement agency, which is now acting as real Steve Friend said, which Steve Friend is an FBI whistleblower, if you guys don't know. Uh, he actually has a case going on right now. Uh, he's been leaking a lot of these emails that the FBI has been sending around from their diversity, equity and inclusion um, emails. Uh, but they're intelligence agency with law enforcement powers. So what, what's this? This is, um, are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this next section is just a couple of tweets about the FBI's involvement in the censorship bureaucracy um, and why a law enforcement agency would have, you know, people staffed, dedicated to policing Twitter, Facebook, and elsewhere asking for the, you know, those companies to censor people. There's a couple, if I'm not mistaken, it's not a very long section and it's almost done. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And it, and again, this is uh, this is kind of like what we were going through, like with the Twitter files and everything else and Elvis Chan and Jim Baker and just a Twitter alone. Um, all of this is in here. So I think we lost Heather. She's probably going to be back. Uh, OK. Yeah, she just went. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be back, I'm sure. Uh, we will now spend some time delving into the FBI's role in domestic widespread censorship. Uh, the FBI tries to hide behind all the guise of, quote, fighting back against foreign information warfare as it censors Americans. We, we know this. We were going through this in Twitter files. They engage uh, 
in mass flagging operations, sharing tactical information with platforms like IP addresses, email accounts, website domain names, and file hash values. The accounts flagged, quote, are targeted by the FBI for account takedowns. Did you want to add something, Tracy? No, um, this part is really, it's really troubling because, again, it's the FBI. And they, they also, as we saw in the Twitter files, communicate a good portion of the time using, um, flat, you know, places that we can't get information from that disappear afterwards. So a lot of their stuff is, is more secret than what we were dealing with um, with the other agencies. Yeah, this is this is nuts. So the FBI pressures and colludes with platforms to remove domestic speech. The FBI contends that in its censorship activities, it is fighting against back against information warfare waged by foreign enemies. But there is no, quote, information warfare exception except to the First Amendment. The FBI has many lawful tools to fight this, quote, warfare, but it may not employ but it may not employ unconstitutional tools yet. That is what the FBI does on a grand scale. So the FBI's mass flagging operations. First, the FBI engages in flagging operations on a massive scale. The FBI admits that it shares, quote, tactical information with platforms, i.e., quote, describing attributes or indicators of particular social media accounts indicating that they were being operated by foreign malign actors, end quote. In practice, this means bombarding platforms with long lists of specific speakers, accounts, and content one to five times per month and that the FBI wants to censor. Quote, tactical information means IP addresses, email accounts, social media accounts, website domain, domains, and file hash values. These are targeted for account takedowns, knocking down accounts, and knocking down posts. The FBI uses an encrypted app called Teleporter. There's actually another one, too. Um, shit, Kyle told me about it. I don't know. I'll ask him later. But the FBI used an encrypted app called Teleporter to communicate with social media companies. They send censorship lists one to five times a month, likely more in my opinion. I agree. Each one of those lists could contain hundreds of accounts for censorship. The FBI demands that seven major social media platforms report back to them on what action they have taken on the targeted accounts. Yeah. I agree with you, Tracy. It sounds completely above board. It sounds super kosher. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, the FBI always communicates with private companies that way. Like, tell us what you did with the stuff we sent you. We need to know. Follow like they're they're almost acting like the trust and safety departments of all these companies. One hundred percent. But you know what's really interesting about this? No mention of child porn. No, they're not interested. They don't care. Yeah, no, they're not interested. They're not. And using teleporter and encrypted messaging service, the FBI sends platforms lists of speakers, accounts, websites, URLs considered to be censored about one to five times per month. In my opinion, I agree with you more. And also flags such speakers and content at regular meetings of platforms. Each flagging communication may include anywhere from one account or one selector to a whole spreadsheet full of them, end quote. Sus messages may flag, quote, dozens or hundreds of accounts for censorship. In general, these messages go to seven major social media platforms. The FBI then requests that the platforms report back to them on the actions taken on the reported URLs at every quarterly meeting. No child porn, though. No. Uh, FBI no treats porn. first. No child porn. FBI treats First Amendment protected speech by American citizens on one core on core political topics such as acceptable collateral damage in its information war. For example, the FBI induced platforms to take down a supposedly Russian-originated, quote, secure the border post that had 134,943 likes. 
and then quote a pro Second Amendment message that that had ninety six thousand six hundred seventy eight likes, and a black li- I'm assuming Black Lives Matters post that had two hundred twenty three thousand seven hundred ninety nine likes. Every one of those likes was an act of First Amendment protected expression. I agree. The FBI also induced platforms to block a supposedly Russian originated website that hosted content from 20 freelance journalists, including Americans. Yep. Uh, and a website to which many ordinary Americans posted content. Yep. Were you on that? No. But I so, did start the release the memo hashtag, though. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, that's days, right. Tracy. Yeah, the release the memo. That's right. <laughs> we all had that in our uh, our profiles back then. So yes. he- here's an example where we get a little bit from the Twitter files. We saw emails of, of what was mentioned here from Elvis Chan to Yoel Roth with uh, Excel spreadsheet of their list. But what? So that was good to see that part. But what we're learning in the Missouri v. Biden and through these depositions is that is the background of how they have these monthly, either biweekly or monthly uh, industry meetings with CISA and all the social media companies discussing everything and using uh, Facebook as the industry lead to set the agenda, discussing everything and how the whole apparatus uh, worked. That's what we're learning through Missouri v. Biden. And uh, secondly, in these posts you just read uh, of Tracy's, what's important here is that to get around the domestic censorship part, they literally label everything as Russia linked. And that is, again, through what the Forum Aligned Influence Center is going is doing, is going to continue doing, is anything they don't like, they slap a Russia disinformation label on it. Which is all bullshit. We right. know that. Right. And that's where we get to release the memo. So FBI doesn't care who gets swept up in its censorship of supposedly, quote, foreign accounts. Tracy did start the hashtag release the memo and they pretended that all of us were Russian. Right. This is where the Russian bot thing or the Russian person came from was release the memo. I remember that now. It's so great. The FBI made platforms to take. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. The reason why release the memo was. Hey, hey, how's my mic? Microphone real quick. Oh, not good. And can you hear Tracy? It's it's not important, Trash. Just continue. No, actually it is. So the reason it was Russian was because I'm assuming the release the memo was regarding the, the Nunes memo, correct? About the yes. Russia gate. Yeah. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, so that so is important. We started that because we wanted him to release it. And then they banned the hashtag after um I think it was Diane Feinstein sent a letter to Twitter saying that it was foreign disinformation and foreign bots on Twitter. And Twitter said, this is not foreign, but okay, we'll suppress the hashtag, even though there's no evidence. So then we just put it all in our names because they can't do that, right? So there were like thousands and thousands and thousands of us with release the memo as our name on Twitter. That, I remember all that. That was funny. We, we literally, they, they were, yeah, exactly what you said, Tracy. And then we all changed our name. It was like, release the memo beans or release the memo and my old name, which I won't say. Hey, Heather, you want to test your microphone real quick before I keep going? All righty. Yeah. So this is the, uh, can you guys hear me? Yep. I can hear you now. 
Is it still bad? Uh, not not good. Yeah. It actually sounds like you're in a dead area more than it is your microphone. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me too. Because like it's just like it's cutting out like you're not getting service the whole time. Wow. All right, I'll come back. Um, so, uh, hey, FBI uh, made platforms take down supposedly. Charlene Bulger. Okay, Heather, you're breaking up really, really, really bad. I can't, I can't hear you. I, maybe take it off Wi-Fi. I mean, I. So when I do these spaces, I, I keep it off Wi-Fi when I'm hosting. That way, I don't jump networks uh, because you'll lose audio sometimes when that happens. I didn't mean to hijack you with my release the memo story. Continue. <laughs> no, I love. Well, first of all, um, I did. So I did a lot of investigating with the the Russia hoax, the the PP tape stuff, the the release the memo, the Devin Nunes memo. It's where I became a huge fan of Cash Patel. So I'm like, no, 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 I love that stuff. So it, you didn't derail me at all. It actually proves the point, right? American citizens putting in their Twitter bio because they're saying release the memo, which was about the Nunes memo regarding the the Russia hoax. So no, it's, it's actually very indicative of this, right? They labeled it all Russian, ironically, because it was about Russiagate and they wanted it suppressed because everybody knew that it was, well, the people that were doing the release of memo knew it was bullshit. Meanwhile, Adam Schiff coming out there and saying, well, I have evidence right here in my hand, but I can't tell you about it because it comes from the Intel community and it's sealed, but I have evidence that proves Donald Trump is a Russian asset. Um, it it basically sidetracked our entire country for four years, and it was a lie. And six years later, we are, I mean, we all knew about it, but six years later, they officially come out, and John Duren comes out and shows that, oh, yeah, it was complete bullshit. Like, we already knew this. Devin Nunes and Cash Patel knew this years ago. Amanda Milius released the document. I mean, anyway. So frustrating. But no, release the memo is very, very important. And now you see why they wanted the, that hashtag taken down and labeled as Russian disinformation. The FBI had made platforms take down supposedly Russian, quote, secure the border post, a pro-Second Amendment post, and a Black Lives Matter post. All of the millions of likes on these posts were an act of the First Amendment expression. They also had platforms block supposedly a Russian website that hosted journalists, which we went through. Um, the FBI also runs a, quote, command post around Election Day that, that specifically flags domestic, quote, disinformation for removal. The FBI, let me send, okay, I've sent it. The FBI has a 50% success rate getting content removed from platforms as per evidence produced in this case from the filing. In addition, the FBI runs a command post on or around Election Day, which flags domestic disinformation for platforms in real time. In reporting such supported disinformation, the FBI makes no attempt to determine whether it's foreign or domestic in origin. The FBI has about a 50% success rate in getting reported content taken down by censored by platforms. So not only is it the FBI that had 50%, but they were saying on average that it was about 73% success rate of getting stuff taken down collectively. Like, that's just crazy. Oh, here we are. Yeah, Elvis Chan. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so here, Elvis Chan, FBI agent Elvis Chan, who the government fought to keep from being deposed, testified that there was no basis to think that there was any impending hack and leak operations, there you go, name, uh, coming from Russia, but it didn't stop them from using that to stop Hunter Biden laptop story during the 2020 election. 
They banned journalists and entire newspapers at the behest of the, of the FBI. Yes, the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post, they actually banned it from Twitter completely. You guys remember that. We read this from the filing. The FBI's deception censor the FBI's deception censored of the censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story provides a dramatic case study of the FBI's censorship of private American political speech. As discussed above, the FBI meets extensively with social media platforms about disinformation, but through the USG industry meetings and frequent bilateral meetings, FBI's regular bilateral meetings with at least eight major tech platforms, content moderation officers. The FBI communicates with platforms routinely through encrypted and self-deleting channels such as Signal and Teleporter. These meetings were the vehicle for the FBI's campaign of deception, deception to censor Hunter Biden laptop story. As discussed above, during the 2020 election cycle, uh, the FBI repeatedly warned platforms to expect a, po a possible hack and dump or hack and leak operation, both in the USG industry meetings and in FBI's bilateral meetings with seven social media platforms, and CISA did so as well. There was no investigative basis for these warnings, as Chan admits. Quote from Ellis Chan, through our investigations, we did not see any competing intrusions to what had happened in 2016, end quote. And the FBI, quote, was not aware of any hack and leak operations that were forthcoming or impending at that time. Yet they blamed it on hack and leak. And that's what they told the social media companies to expect because of the story. The government strongly leans on the congressional testimony of Yul Roth about the Biden laptop story, but his testimony actually corroborates the plaintiff's pleadings. The FBI pressured Twitter and other social media companies to remove the Hunter Biden laptop story and ban anyone who shared it. Very Orwellian indeed, Tracy. To dispute this account, the government relies heavily on Yul Roth's 23 congressional testimony on February 8th, 2023. But in fact, those hearings corroborate virtually every key detail of the FBI's involvement in suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. Roth confirms that the FBI conveyed no investigative basis for the warning. The suppression was not based on any, quote, specific information from a government source. The hearing confirms that the FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop since December of 2019. And thus, the FBI knew the laptop's contents were not hacked materials, noting that the FBI had it for a year. And if anybody knows it's real, it's them, end quote. The hearing confirms that the censorship of the story lasted two weeks, not 24 hours, as the government misleadingly say, stated. I just added in the top trash uh, what they're talking about, Yoel Roth's uh, sworn declaration about uh, being warned of the hack and leak. Uh, he says, I'll read it if you want. It's short. Yeah, go for it. Says, uh, since 2018, I have had regular meetings with the Office of Director of National Intelligence, that would be Shelby Pearson, uh, the DHS, the FBI, and industry peers regarding election security. During these weekly meetings, the federal law enforcement agencies communicated that they expected hack and leak operations by state actors might occur in the period shortly before the 2020 presidential election, likely in October. I was told in these meetings that the intelligence community expected that individuals associated with political campaigns would be subject to hacking attacks and that material obtained through those hacking attacks would likely be disseminated over social media platforms, including Twitter. These expectations of hack and leak operations were discussed throughout 2020. I also learned in these meetings that there were rumors that a hack and leak operation would involve Hunter Biden. So 
That was Yoel Roth's sworn declaration. Um, and FBI, and now when they, through Missouri v. Biden, when they deposed um, Elvis Chan, he confirmed that they warned social media of hack and leak operations. And Elvis Chan specifically named the people. He said there were four people that war- were, gave these warnings. It was himself. Uh, it was his boss, another FBI uh, supervisor. I forget her name. And um, and Shelby Pearson from the Office of Director of National Intelligence. I forget the fourth person, but that she was specifically named um, on this. But Elvis Chan denies that they ever brought up Hunter Biden. So that was also the... important to note is that they only got Elvis Chan's name because Facebook was forced to give it to them. Exactly. They, yeah. I mean, the only reason they knew it was Elvis Chan is because they cornered Facebook on it. And Facebook provided the name and the government fought tooth and nail to stop Elvis Chan from being deposed, but couldn't win on that. Hey, guys, how's my microphone? Oh, we're winning. Winning, (laughs) yes. We're winning. Okay, so I don't know if you guys saw, but I brought up Charlene Bollinger as a speaker here. And she was one of the uh, 12 that were the disinformation dozen. So if you don't mind, I'd love for her to give like a brief sort of synopsis of her lawsuit against the censorship. Yeah, sure. No problem. Actually, I could use a break as well for my voice. Let me get something to drink. So I would like to hear about this. I want to add one more thing. Oh, Nane, you're always adding one more thing, but go ahead. I I, I, I have to. So when the Office of Director of National Intelligence put out their their unclassified assessment of foreign threats of 2020 elections, they literally blamed the Russians for, it, it is what it says, Russia state media trolls and online proxies Uh, including those directed by Russia intelligence, published disparaging content about President Biden, his family and the Democratic Party and heavily amplified related content circulating in the U.S. media, including stories centered on his son. That's all. Oh, yeah, that's all. No big deal. Hey, Heather, go ahead. (laughs) All right. Charlene, you there? (laughs) Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you so much for coming up here. And before I bring you on, I just want everyone to know, I completely credit Charlene and her work with helping a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, curing her leukemia through various treatments that she wouldn't have found if it were not for the docuseries that Charlene and Ty put out. So they truly do life-saving work. And I just am forever grateful for you, Charlene. Well, thank you, Heather. I appreciate you reaching out to me and uh, letting me know about this space. And by the way, everybody listening and the speakers, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I have sent this link to many influencers. Uh, We need as many people on these types of spaces to understand what's going on, who's controlling it and how win. We have a lot of winning strategies, but just so that um, everyone listening knows who I am, Um, You probably may not have heard of me because we have been so censored. And the reason we're censored is because the content and body of our life work is saving many lives and exposing those who are um, doing the opposite. And, you know, uh, the Bible tells us that um, the darkness hates the light because it doesn't want its evil deeds exposed. But that's what we do all day long and twice on Sunday. Um, My name again is Charlene Bollinger. My main website is thetruthaboutcancer.com. I am one of the... um, infamous disinformation dozen. One of us has fallen, Dr. Rasha Bittar, a very good friend of uh, ours, 
Um, he believes he was poisoned. And I know that I was a few years ago. And we won't get into that in this space. But um, Bobby Kennedy is on this list. Uh, our, our good friend, Dr. Joseph Mercola, I think he was listed number one, Bobby number two, and Ty and Charlene Bollinger number three. There is also uh, Sayer G from greenmedinfo.com, great website. Aaron Elizabeth from Health Nut News has been honored to be named on this list. Dr. Sherry Timpenny. And I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but this is a group of people that really are warriors that have been fighting in most cases for many years to get the truth out there. And during the COVID um, scamdemic, I'm just going to say it, um, we, we were working with all of these people, Andy Wakefield, Dale Bigtree and others um, to give the world the truth. We knew what was happening from the beginning and we released the truth about vaccines presents uh, or the truth about vaccines 2020, knowing in 2019, healthy people 2020 was um, a nefarious agenda. And in their uh, legion of things they wanted to roll out on us, we knew that their goal in 2020 was to take away our freedom to opt out of vaccines. And so by 2030, they wanted everybody in the world caught up on all of the vaccines, which is, I, I believe the number is now between 72 and 76 vaccinations recommended on the childhood schedule, they wanted everybody to be caught up by 2030. And they couldn't do that unless they took away our freedom to say no. And before the COVID was rolled out on us, we knew that something was going to happen. We had no idea COVID was coming. But in the height of this thing, we had a, a, a 10-part docuseries we rolled out, TTAV 2020, The Truth About Vaccines 2020. And though we were heavily censored at the time, millions of people tuned in because they wanted to know what was going on. We did roundtable discussions with, you know, Judy Mikovits. I did one-on-one with Judy, one-on-one with Bobby and so forth. Well, of course, um, bar for the course, YouTube took those panels down and eventually they took our whole channel down. They took the truth about vaccines off. And then we had the truth about cancer, which is where we started in 2006 because we lost various family members to the cancer treatments, not to cancer. And so we now have learned the truth. We give remedies to the world and we hear from people all over the place who have been sent home to die with cancer who are alive and cancer free same thing with the vaccines and so when we put it out there when we released it in april remember april of 2020 was the height of this thing and everybody was wondering what the heck is going on and so this film was telling them exactly what the vaccine agenda was what are in the vaccines and on and on so when we were releasing it and we put it out free to the world in April of 2020, we literally were having to do voiceovers like hours before we released the episodes because the World Health Organization was just the things that were putting out there was so crazy and it was happening so fast. We had one of the bills here proposed, I believe it was in California, HR 666. I mean, they had to put the extra six for good measure that we didn't miss that one. But they literally were working hardcore to take all of our freedoms away and they're Savior was the shot. And if you haven't read the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, I really encourage you to do so. I think that most people see through him at this point. But we were putting out stellar content. And so they put out the disinformation dozen list telling all of the censor, uh, the, the platforms from Facebook to Instagram to Twitter to take down all of our accounts. And so I sent Heather a screenshot. Maybe we can pop it into the comment section. But um, it's just one of many screenshots that 
this case that we're talking about here published uh, from the information, the Freedom of Information Act. And I saw some really good shows talk about this screenshot specifically on uh, the Epic Times. And Facebook is talking to HHS and <laughs> to the White House in this uh, email. And they're telling them, I'm going to just read this to you. This is actually in this email. They say um, from Facebook to the HHS government agencies are talking to, I wanted to make sure you saw the steps we took just this past week to adjust policies on what we are removing with respect to misinformation, as well as steps taken to further address this disinformation dozen. We removed 17 additional pages, groups, and Instagram accounts tied to the disinformation dozen. So a total of 39 profiles, pages, groups, and Instagram accounts deleted thus far, resulting in every member of the disinformation dozen having had at least one such entity removed. We are also continuing to make four other pages and profiles which have not yet met their removal thresholds more difficult to find on our platform. In other words, shadow banning. We also expanded the group of false claims that we remove to keep up with the recent trends of misinformation that we are seeing, end quote. So they were literally there saying that they took at least one page from every one of us down. And so shortly thereafter, we have Congress people talking to Jack Dorsey at the time. He was CEO of uh, Twitter. And then we had uh, Zuckerberg on that call. It was a video call and the, the guy that's headed up Google and YouTube. And this Congress person was saying how dangerous we were. They needed to take us down. And within days, they literally took all five of our Twitter channels down with no warning, no reason. They just took all of our Twitter channels down. In 2020 or 2021, October, Heather was with us with Real America's Voice, great network, at our live event, The Truth About Cancer, live in Nashville. Our keynote speaker was uh, Eric Trump. He's a really great guy. He had a lot of good things to say. And they were they feared this group, this event, because we were coming together without the, adhering to these mandates, which are not laws. They wanted to mask us all up. They wanted to convince everybody that the vaccine was a savior. And we were there to unpack the truth, which they don't like. And so they tried to get the event shut down. They attacked all of us. And the night before the event started, Instagram took us down where I was connected personally to Eric and to Tiffany Trump. She's my friend. We talked together. And the, the problem they had was Eric had millions of followers. And when he came, if he would have reposted some things, because we were posting the same content, I was introducing him to some of my friends, like uh, Pastor Arthur in Canada. Uh, in September of that year, we were at an event here in Nashville, and I had the pleasure of introducing the two. And we were talking publicly on Instagram. So they're watching us, and they're naming us, and they're taking us down so that Eric doesn't repost something because Millions of people might have seen our life-saving content, and that's a big no-no in their world. They own everything, so they think. And so they took us down, and then Biden went out after his press secretary of the time shortly thereafter. Um, I'm trying to remember the time. It was maybe in May of 2021, and we have it listed. We're in a TNI uh, um, antitrust lawsuit with Bobby Kennedy and some others, but um, at that time, Biden came out and accused us of being killers. First, they accused Facebook. 
And Facebook got mad, so he backwalked that and caught and called us killers. And when he did that, that very day, YouTube took our cancer channel down after taking our vaccine channel down. And remember, that was just cancer content, healing protocols, testimonies of people that were alive to encourage people that were looking for solutions for their health. And this cancer channel had no politics, no vaccines, and no COVID information at all, but they took it down. And we had hundreds of thousands of subscribers and many, many millions of views. These are people that are looking to us as their lifeline, and they took it away from the people. And I said at that time, this is government collusion at the highest order, and it has been proven through these documentations that we're now looking at, the Trusted News Initiative we unpack in this antitrust lawsuit that we're in with Bobby Kennedy, and we're going after the legacy media who has worked to take us down because people were listening to us instead of them because we were telling the truth and the content of our life work, our films, our articles, and everything that we do, our live events, it's literally saving lives. And it's exposing them as liars. The Washington, I'm sorry, did I say, I meant to say the Washington Post and the, uh, a few others, the AP and uh, Reuters and the BBC, those are the uh, defendants listed in this case and there are other plaintiffs with us that are going after legacy media that tried to knock us out they rolled out the fact checkers they worked with social media they worked with the government this is a media cabal a social media cabal it's a government cabal and this is a shadow government this is not the real government and i think that we have um on this call uh, marjorie taylor green i've not met you marjorie but I'm a big fan of your stance that, for freedom. A, that's, a, that's a parody account. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I wish she was here. But she's an example <laughs> of someone that I believe is standing for America. And we have uh, Rand Paul. I've had dinner with him. People like that in our, our government, we are so grateful for. You know, And we, we do stand with the Trump family. And I'm good friends with Bobby Kennedy. They're both running for president. I think it would be great to have Kennedy as the Democrat nominee and uh, Donald as that's just my opinion. But we need freedom fighters. We need to stop this censorship because it's literally taking the lives of so many. And as long as God gives us breath, we're not going to stop. We're going to continue to fight for the people so that they can live. And we see people dying and dropping dead. And so we're working on our next film, which is The Truth About uh, vaccines presents remedy because we have doctors and scientists that have real solutions to people that have had the shot. They regret it. They fear for their lives. Now you can literally turn around myocarditis. That is a result of these shots. It's amazing what you can do. And so we're trying to get that information together. Now we're going to release it in July. So we need to just come together. Uh, we're friends with Mickey Willis. He just did the great awakening. I think, Heather, you were there. I was unable to be there. My little girls had a dance recital, but we love Mickey. We need to stick together, and together, we're going to win. We're going to win our freedoms back, and we're going to save a whole lot of lives. So just to end my little segment here, thank you to every speaker here and to every listener here. I encourage you to follow all of these speakers and encourage each other and continue to get our websites and our content. We will win. We don't need them to win. We just need one another. We need the truth and God Almighty. Amen. Thank you guys so much. There were a couple of hands up a minute ago. I don't know if you guys had questions for Charlene, but you're more than welcome to chime in and ask. 
I'm not sure, but thank you so much, Charlene. I really appreciate it. And where can people go to, obviously they can follow you here on Twitter, um, but do you have like an email list or something that they can subscribe to so that independent of social media, they can follow your work? Yeah, absolutely, Heather. And thanks for asking and, and for the opportunity to connect. Um, I just encourage everybody to go to thetruthaboutcancer.com. And at the top of that website, you'll find a place where you can put your email and name in to uh, subscribe to our free newsletter. It's free. This is the stuff that's censored that they don't want you to, to know about. Certainly follow us here on Twitter, but they knocked out all of, you know, we're back on our smaller channels and even our small channels are really microscopic now because they knocked out most of our followers. So the truth about vaccines is one that we're back on. So follow us there. But all of our social media channels, the main ones are linked to our website. Follow us and subscribe to the free e-newsletter because um, you're not going to want to miss the film we're preparing for you. It's going to really, um, it's going to be a blockbuster, at least for life around the world. It's stuff they don't want you to see. That's why we're on the disinformation doesn't. So definitely sign up on that uh, free e-newsletter, watch our films and read our content. Please share it with people. Organically, we can we can reach way more people than they could censor and block. Uh, We need a new Bifrost. If you've seen Thor, the movie, you know, the Bifrost, they busted it up, but we have to rebuild it. And if we do it together, we're going to win. And I I just will never tire of saying that. So the truth about cancer dot com. Hey, Trash, this is Dr. Angela. I tried to uh, give my question real quick to Charlene. Can you hear me sure. okay? We can awesome. hear you. Yeah, go ahead, Angela. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to tell Charlene, big thank you. Your original Truth About Vaccine series woke up my mother-in-law, who was a retired uh, public health professional in a big county in California. That was a huge aha for her. And I wanted to share with you, there's been something that I've been finding in labs with post-jab and post-COVID injured patients that I've been trying to share with some of the, um, how should we say, recently woken up doctors, and they're not really listening. So I have a sneaking suspicion you guys might be either on the same page or going in that direction with what you're doing. I'll back channel you. I don't want to hold on to this knowledge. I want to share it and let you share it with the world. Thank you for everything you do. That's amazing, Angela. And, you know, um, I would love to connect with you. Maybe we can talk about this and definitely send me a DM here on um, Twitter and then we'll connect and uh, see how we can bring light, shed light to the information. That's all That's all that we do all the time. Um, a lot of the doctors that were in obscurity that people didn't know, we were able to feature in our films. And as a result, uh, the world knows about these doctors and these are noble heroes. And that's what we need. The noble heroes to step up and together. We're very strong. So thank you, Ange. And don't forget to, if you subscribe to her email list, to check your spam folder, because I've found that all the people I want to hear from Google puts in my spam folder. Um, but let's go ahead with James. You have your hand up. Hey, thanks. Yeah, uh, going back to what Name said, and it actually does apply to what uh, uh, the last speaker just spoke about, is that I think what people miss is is the the pivotal nature of Elvis Chan's emails uh, and uh, uh, deposition. 
and, and it's this, that the, the reason why social media, all of them, are doing what they're doing is not really because they were predisposed to behave this way, but because Elvis Chan centrally cultivated these sources to bring them onto the team. If you follow what he's doing and saying by, oh, James is let's always get... driving somewhere. I, I am. Did you lose me? No. Keep going. <laughs> okay. So... It's about him cultivating these people as sources, bringing them in with these, uh, oh, do you have anybody on the team that has, uh, you know, top secret clearance? Oh, we're going to have to work together to get you that clearance. And bringing them in made them feel like they were the front line defending the nation on mis and mal and disinformation. So I think understanding Elvis Chan's role here is very pivotal to understanding why the tech companies are acting in the manner that they are. And just for context on that real quick, uh, and Charlene, thank you so much. I mean, I get a chance to thank you for coming up, and I appreciate uh, and I'm glad you were able to speak on the floor to everybody. And, and kind of to go with what James was saying, keep in mind, this is the field office, the FBI field office out of San Francisco, right? So direct access to the social media, Silicon Valley, tech, why they were doing what they were doing. And, and really, Elvis Chan is just a small part of this bigger apparatus that we're kind of going through. But it, it, again, you don't have to have talking points all you need to do is recruit and hire the ideologues and they'll do it themselves. You don't even have to get them to do it. They'll just go in lockstep with you. It's a fundamental belief. It's the same thing that happens in the legacy media. It's the same thing that happens in these companies. You're hiring people that are predisposed or ideologically uh, aligned with what you with what you want. And it takes care of itself. Uh, does anybody else have any questions for Charlene? I don't know how much time she has. And I'm almost through this whole thread, uh, Tracy's thread, if you guys are just joining us, because it seems like it's jumped up a bit. Um, we're actually going through Tracy's uh, full coverage of this Missouri v. Biden case that is going to blow the doors off of things. And Judge Terry Dowdy has moved this forward. And I, what this, what the ramifications of this injunction is going to mean and all of this emergency discovery is going to mean is that all these other cases that are out there now have a lot more to work with or future cases as well. So this is a this is literally a landmark case. This is the entire censorship apparatus. Now, granted, it's not all of it. I mean, there's so much work that has been done. Mike Benz is up here with us. Name redacted myself. Everybody that's done work on the censorship stuff. There's so much here, but this is really able to at least outline in the beginning, in the injunction hearing, before we even go to trial, all the stuff that's connected with this. So, Trash, can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah, Mike. <clears throat> right now, um, so I've spoken with about eight different congressional committees, probably had about 30 briefings in all. I've been on a over a year now crusade to get one sacred piece of discovery that has eluded us and that I believe is the El Dorado of discovery documents for all this, the, the infinite gold mine. Uh, I also sort of refer to it as the world's most perfectly preserved first amendment crime scene. And this, these are the tickets being held by Stanford university as the, um, uh, on the JIRA service desk software enterprise they have, where they kept the world's most meticulous communication system with 
the federal government through CISA uh, with, uh, with, with, with CIS, CIS, the, uh, the, uh, who is the 24 seven uh, disinformation, domestic disinformation switchboard. And with every single major tech platform, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Reddit, and about a dozen of them where they censored all this, these, this is the tickets that has every single narrative that was censored for the 2020 election, the 2022 midterms, and the COVID-19 pandemic, including 66 uh, narratives that were totally banned, not posts, narratives, each narrative comprising millions of posts. All of this was coordinated on a common dashboard that the federal government, the, the tech companies, and Stanford University and its consortium all logged into every single day with 120 sensors working around the clock. If that can be compelled in, dis- in discovery, right now, Jim, I don't know if anyone's following this, but the, but the House Judiciary Committee actually did, um, to their credit, uh, they, they did, I, I believe, last month finally subpoena Stanford University. And uh, for, these, for these records, Stanford is refusing to comply with the, uh, with the Jim Jordan Committee subpoena. And Jim Jordan is threatening subpoena enforcement, which is going to depend on, I don't know, potentially the Justice Department, who seems to be intervening on behalf of Stanford. But if you could get a court-ordered subpoena from, uh, for, uh, of Stanford University to turn over these tickets, you can't tell this the censorship story as I see it in, in the Missouri v. Biden case without these tickets. Everything else is going to beat around the bush. These, they, they, you know, one of the things that's come out from this. When I asked you to like, let me at least focus for 30 minutes so I can not have to start the fuck over. You want to like stay outside whistling. I said it's not your fault. I just can't concentrate. Okay. I'll stop talking. I just joined. So no, it wasn't you. Not you, Mike. Not you. She was accidentally unmuted. Oh yeah. Go ahead, Mike. (laughs) Oh, sorry. No, but I, I can, I can inform some of what you're saying if you'd like me to. Yeah. Um, so there have been, as far as I, I am aware, preservation notices set on that very thing to all these agencies. There's two things going on. Number one, plaintiff Jill Hines is suing these organizations at, at, on their own outside of this Missouri v. Biden case in the same district as Judge Doty is taking this case on um, because she lives there. Number two, once we get into actual you know, full-fledged discovery, I already know that that is something that they are going for. So you will probably have your wish uh, granted by Judge Doty in this case shortly. Wow. So even though they're not a party to the lawsuit? Um, Even though they're not a party to the lawsuit, yes, because they're so intertwined, there would be, they're, they're going to be witnesses. Right, right. No, I mean that—that that was my my hope. I just I figured that it would have to be done by some sort of court ordered subpoena because I mean I just the the idea that they would voluntarily turn this over without a subpoena it seems it seems improbable to me because because there, there's so much there's been so much um, I'm trying to use a word that doesn't involve cursing schmuckery uh, uh, for by them at every turn to you know. Uh, it's it's been incredible. I mean, honestly, it's almost like you know the level of protection they've enjoyed on on what we've tried to obtain through FOIA. You know, it was, I mean, CISA telling us that they, the federal government, 
didn't have access to the communications that they that they did. The, the fact that they were recruiting people on a on a signal, they recruited the Stanford yeah. people to join a private signal chat. And, and you know, January six defendants got rolled up for advancing a conspiracy if they simply joined a signal chat because that was said to be uh, trying to hide uh, discoverable communications by using end-to-end encrypted chat. And CISA created an outside signal chat to expressly to evade federal records laws so that they could carry out this mass censorship operation without discovery. So, so uh, I just feel like all of that stuff can be has to, would probably have to be subpoenaed by a, a friendly judge. If it's not in this case, it'll definitely be in, in Jill's case, for sure. Um, mm. And hey, Trash, I'm really sorry. I have to go. I'm a half hour late for something right now. But I appreciate all you guys so much. And um, I'll be back if you do it again. Or maybe if you don't do it again, I'll be back too. Love you guys. Thanks for covering this stuff. It's so important. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Tracy. Appreciate it. A few people that are in that lawsuit. So if you want to like send me the DM on it. Oh, she's gone. Yeah. So what we're doing, guys, is going through Tracy's breakdown of the Missouri v. Biden case. And I was going to answer Mike as well. Like this right now is just discovery, like an emergency discovery through the injunction hearing. It's not even the trial yet. So I suspect that all of this is going to come up as well. It's going to be great. Let me go ahead and finish out this thread and then get some thoughts and feedback from everybody because I'm almost done. And I just wanted to kind of go through this. We are on the conclusion, uh, the prayer for relief and what they intend to get out of this case uh, as far as the injunction hearing is concerned. So uh, if you guys remember the hashtag release the memo uh, that was included in this as Russian, uh, you know, propaganda, Russian influence operation. It was actually Tracy and name and a bunch of people <laughs> were talking about the uh, Devin Nunes memo regarding uh, uh, Russiagate. Uh, there was no indication that this was something nefarious and foreign in nature, but that didn't stop leftists and politicians from writing threatening letters to Twitter about the hashtag. <clears throat> Quote, but at the time, Twitter's global policy communications chief, Emily Horn, wrote privately that this hashtag and a related hashtag uh, appear to be organically trending and that Twitter, quote, has not seen any indications that the accounts engaging this activity for either hashtag are predominantly Russian or that Russian accounts are driving the engagement. The vast majority of what we're seeing here appears to be organic in nature. This is from the filing guys. So one vivid example from Elvis Chan's public statements illustrates that the FBI was not, quote, always proven correct, but in fact was colossally mistaken with an overt political bias. Uh, Elvis Chan's master thesis, master's thesis indicates that the FBI flagged the conservative oriented quote, uh, hashtag release the memo hashtag supporting Congressman yeah, Devin Nunes' investigation regarding the Russia collusion as suppose uh, as suppose supposed Russian inauthentic activity. And it suggests that the FBI induced Twitter to remove thousands of tweets amplifying the hashtag uh, Chan including the hashtag of the pie chart of the 929,000 tweets removed from the IRA-controlled accounts, including release the memo. But at the time, Twitter's global policy communications, Emily Chief Horn, wrote privately that this hashtag and related hashtag appear to be organically trending and that Twitter has not seen any indication that the accounts engaging in this activity for either hashtag are predominantly Russian or that Russian accounts are driving the engagement. The vast majority of what we're seeing here appears to be organic in nature, uh, so it, obviously that was not manufactured. The rest of this filing is a legal argument and super interesting, but I'm not going to go thread at all. Just understand that everything you've read here and more will be in front of a judge tomorrow. 
um, as he hears arguments on whether or not should be granting a temporary injunction. So right now, guys, as you know, we are still awaiting is about this is about two weeks ago. We're still waiting on the judge's ruling on the injunction. And I'll, I'll just tell you what the injunction, what they're hoping to seek out of this. I'll read it from the filing. So the plaintiffs respectfully request that the court enter judgment in their favor and grant the following relief. A, certify this case as a class action under federal rule of civil procedure 23B2. As proposed herein, appoint, appoint plaintiffs Bhattacharya, Hines, Hoft, Cariotti, Ker, uh, and Koldorf as class representatives and appoint John J. Vecchione and John C. Burns as class counsel. Uh, these are from those groups that I was talking about earlier. Uh, declare defendants B. Declare defendants' conduct violates the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and analogous provisions of Missouri's, Louisiana's, and other states' constitutions. C. Declare that defendants' conduct is ultra-vere and exceeds their statutory authority. D. Declare the defendant's conduct violates Administrative Procedure Act and is unlawful and vacate and set aside such conduct. And then E. Preliminary and permanently enjoin defendants, except for President Biden, their officers, officials, agents, servants, employees, attorneys, and all persons acting in concert or participation with them from continuing to engage in unlawful conduct as alleged herein. F. Preliminary and permanently enjoined. I think I just went through that. Uh, yeah, herein. And let me see where I can get caught back up. Oh, no, no, there's another. They're reading it again. It's different. Preliminary and permanently enjoined defendants, except for Biden, their officers, officials, agents, servants, employees, attorneys, and all persons acting in concert or participation with them from taking steps to demand, urge, pressure, or otherwise induce any social media platform to censor, suppress, deplatform, suspend, shadow ban, deboost, restrict access to content, or take any other adverse action against any speaker, content, or viewpoint expressed on social media, and grant such other and further relief as the court may deem just and proper. So keep in mind, guys, this is not the trial. This is just an injunction hearing. So like this is the trial. This is going to be this is going to be ongoing for the next four or five years. And as the case opens up for trial, and hopefully the injunction does pass, and they get the relief that they're asking for here. Um, we could probably put a stop to a lot of this stuff or they are criminally, the government will be criminally contempt. Then once you move into the discovery phase and it slows down and they're able to build up their witnesses and get the information, a lot of what Mike is talking about here with the, uh, the JIRA ticking, ticketing system, which is what I was talking about earlier today and yesterday and everything else, that I think it's a great point that that is the focal point. That is where it entered into these systems from like the Global Engagement Center, CISA and all these other places. So that is where the information is going to be coming from. And that's where the damning stuff is. So I, I agree with you, Mike. So guys, that is what I know about the Hunter v. Biden case. At this point, we've had two days of a space on it. And we've probably covered Well, at this point. It's three and a half hours. Yesterday was four and a half hours. So eight hours of this uh, we've done. And then both, uh, both are recorded. Don't worry. You can go back and listen. Uh, but it's been an amazing space. I want to open it up for comment. If anybody wants to bring anything up, talk about anything, we can kind of free flow now. But now we've covered the entire Missouri v. Biden case so far as we know it. So one comment I want to make on the Elvis Chan deposition, I'm looking at it right now. I mean, this guy is very intelligent the way he goes through this deposition. It's always just playing like word games. And uh, I don't remember saying it was there would likely be a hack and leak. I said we said there might probably. I mean, it's just constant back and forth. Um, did anyone ask about the Hunter Biden laptop? Did you know that 
the FBI was a, uh, had Hunter Biden's laptop in its possession. And anytime they got into this, these were the points where uh, Elvis Chan's counsel, the DOJ counsel, would object. So they would object. And then Elvis Chan would say, I was only aware when the news media outlets posted it. And they literally had to drag, uh, dr- just force him to give up names of people on this conference call. But there were loads of FBI agents on these concert conference calls with CISO. They were weekly, monthly, quarterly, uh, and hack and leak was discussed on all these meetings. And he denies that Hunter Biden's name uh, was brought up from the sense that they were warning social media of Hunter Biden being a hack and leak on him. But uh, I guess Microsoft, he named Microsoft as one participant that asked him if uh, or asked the FBI on these calls if they uh, uh, were investigating Hunter Biden on this. And uh, Demlov, which I guess is a agent, uh, supervisor agent FBI, um, said uh, no comment on that. And then, you know, I think there's probably about a dozen 10 to 20 pages of this deposition just on the Hunter Biden hack and leak warnings that they gave. And it's just a lot of like word salad going back and forth uh, and a lot of answers from Elvis Chan of not to my knowledge. No, I don't have recollection, you know, things like that. But they they do they are able to drag out a lot of names of other participants on this call from it. But it it is interesting uh, deposition if anyone has uh, the time or cares you should go through it it's uh 386 pages but the hunter biden hack and leak uh portion of it is uh interesting yeah no it, it really is and it, it obviously illuminates a lot of this stuff and, and guys i want to remind you guys what we were talking about earlier in this case so we were talking about the disinformation dozen uh which i i, I definitely appreciate charlene coming up um, and that's in the filing here. It's also talking about how they, quote unquote, disbanded the uh, dis- uh, disinformation governance board. They didn't. Name did a uh, great thread up in the top nest looking for the Foreign Malign Influence Center. This is actually funded out of the NDAA. All of that information is in there in this thread, including video. Um, I believe there's video in this. No, there wasn't any. No, that's on a different one. That's I was thinking something else. But go through that because that's essentially the disinformation governance board uh, that's funded to your taxpayer dollars. Of course, we've been paying pretty hefty penny for our own censorship. Uh, You got to say it's not tax dollars well spent. I can tell you that. But uh, no, a lot of this stuff is in the nest. It's down in the chat. If you guys want to reference the recording from yesterday, this is your first day coming here. We went through pretty much not only just to be to go through this. But we went through a lot of the other things that are going on right now with the corruption in our government. So the last couple of days have been excellent. So I really appreciate everybody being here. I don't know if you guys have more comments. Heather, Carolina, Mike, anybody that's on the panel? Well, I kind of want to follow up with Charlene and just ask her what the next step is in her uh, lawsuit. Like when you go back to court and sort of like what the relief is you're seeking and things of that nature. Because I think both cases are really powerful. Yeah, thanks, Heather, for the opportunity. Again, <laughs> um, we we have had a little activity, and I'm trying to wrap my hands around it because it, it's uh, and nobody knows this yet. So this is going to be the first public statement about this movement. It's not anything major, really, but it is movement. 
Um, we have moved from Texas to, uh, and I'm trying to understand the whys behind it, and the wheels of justice sometimes move a little more slowly than you would like. Um, but again, this is a, an antitrust lawsuit against legacy media who has on purpose censored us with the purpose of um, taking our revenue away and putting it into their pockets. They said this, but, and I can unpack that in, in more of, uh, after I say the, the immediate actions taken. So we moved from Texas. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, so is, is this lawsuit in any way because of the collusion with government? Is there a, like, do you have any intentions of adding defendants to the lawsuit? Or, like, I mean, with you being basically colluded, like, like government colluding with big tech to censor you and others, like, don't you as one of the censored individuals have some sort of recourse against the government as well? You know, you're, you're absolutely right, Heather. So let me, let me help the uh, listener understand where we're coming from and how it's really important for us to work with Missouri versus Biden. And we have this information because of this stellar law case, a lawsuit. And so we're very grateful for the declassification of so much important information, which, again, we have been mentioned uh, on a number of different um, issues here. And there's more that we're learning, too. Uh, somebody in the comment section of space put a screenshot of something I sent to you, Heather. It's a list of, um, they call us far right disinformation agents or something like that. And our, our yeah, it's, a, it's up in the nest. I had Caroline, Carolina, Carolina post it. It's the second thing in the nest. Scroll back one. Yeah. So when you look at that, you'll see websites. We, the most dangerous websites that they listed this group of people, whatever this is, that were, um, they claim, they keep claiming that we're, we're spreading disinformation, which is dangerous. Well, I have to say dangerous to who, because the body of our work literally has saved millions of lives. And that's not even an exaggeration because we hear from these people. And, um, so I would say that it's dangerous to the devil because he came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10, 10 says that, that our enemy comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, but Jesus said, I came to give you life and give it to you abundantly. And that's what our work does. It gives solutions and it saves lives. Um, but nevertheless, they put us on these lists. We're number 29. Our website, which I said earlier, thetruthaboutcancer.com, you definitely want to sign up there because they're definitely trying to hit us and, and take us down. But that's just not going to happen. And with your help, we're going to reach more people. But back to the lawsuit, Missouri versus Biden is really focused on exposing this government collusion, which must happen. And so with everything God gives us, we want to help this case to get to the finish line with a big W, a big win. And that's all we know how to do is win, you know, and we're connected to uh, the creator of the universe. So, you know, in his power, we do win. And so what we're focused on, and we had talked about the social media and their strategy about that. And, um, but we focused on legacy media right now. And that I want you to understand, you need to understand what the Trusted News Initiative is. And if you look up, um, our, you can go to thetruthaboutcancer.com, look for antitrust lawsuit, pull that up. And in that, uh, we had a, an official press release and uh, we have a link into the document that we filed. And so when you look at that, just read the first, it's a long document, but read the first seven to nine pages, something like that. But when you read it, you'll learn what the Trusted News Initiative is. And people don't know this. It is a media cabal. 
Bobby Kennedy did an interview on Tucker when we first um, put the lawsuit in place and filed it. And he called this, this media, legacy media, a media cabal because they are, and here's why. In 2019, these media partners came together and they said, we are normally competitors, but you know what? Those guys over there are taking our traffic, our conversions, and they're taking our money too because nobody's trusting us anymore. They're trusting them. They're listening to them. So here's what we're going to do. We need to team together and we're going to call, and they always name themselves the things that they are not, but they want to appear to be. For example, the Federal Reserve. That's also a scam. They call themselves federal, but they're not federal. They're private, private bankers. In fact, these are bankers from Europe. They're not even American bankers. And there are no reserves. They took it. So that's just an example of what they do. They put a name out there to make it look credible. So doesn't Trusted News Initiative, doesn't that sound nice? But these are the liars. And these are the people that are putting out now fact checkers telling the official story, which is different from the truth. And... Now, the CDC, when they called us dangerous, Biden called us dangerous, they're all saying the same thing that we said in the beginning of this pandemic. We were saying the shot's not going to help, the shot's going to harm, the shot's going to kill millions of people. They said that was dangerous. Nobody needed to hear what we had to say because we're so dangerous. But if they did hear what we had to say, they would be alive today. Many of the people that have died would be alive today. And it's a travesty of justice that this cabal, this media cabal has come together to hide our content and hide our partner's content from Bobby Kennedy. And thank the Lord, Bobby Kennedy was just reinstated on Instagram. So go follow him. He's got a big Instagram and it's great. But um, he was just reinstated. We're happy about that. But they took him down. They took us down and all of us on a number of channels. And now when you search for the truth about cancer, you used to be able to find on Google, we were, we were, we filled 20 pages of their search and it was stellar content, life-saving videos and content and articles. Now you find the debunkers because they've blown up our social media channels and they hide the content we, that content that we do have and they push up the debunking lies. And so if you didn't know us, you would have no idea that we are holding life in our hands and giving it to the world freely. That's how successful they've been in their censorship and propaganda campaigns. But we're coming after them with this lawsuit to expose them. The Trusted News Initiative is a cabal membership of media partners that are peddling lies and causing people to die. This is very serious and we must expose it and we must eradicate it from the face of the earth. So with our part... We, we are so happy about the Missouri versus Biden. That, I believe, is the government expose. We are exposing the government collusion and the cabal there. And with what we're doing, we are exposing the media partnership with the social media uh, channels. And I am so grateful. Whatever you think of Elon Musk, he, these Twitter spaces are a game changer. And the freedom of speech now enveloping this platform is unbelievable. And so the other platforms are having to release the cords that are bound around our necks and they're having to allow us because now Elon Musk has, has opened up a space of freedom, which is really important. So our uh, leadership role is over the media cabal to expose them and our intention 
is to win. And here's what we're after. It's, it's really twofold. Two things that we're after. We're after uh, restoring the freedom of speech because they've really taken it away from us. And as a result, people are dying. It's that serious. So this lawsuit is to expose what they're doing and to stop them from censoring us and muzzling us and restore the freedom of speech, which is guaranteed to us by the, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and more importantly, by God himself. The Constitution was just written along the, just reiterating what God has already given to us, the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, and ultimately for us, it's about saving lives. Because they shut us down, people are dying, and I can't stress that enough. And so we need to be able to reach the world with the content that would literally save their lives. And so it's really important. That's what our goal is. And we're going after monetary damages here. And I would like to see the, these publications go bankrupt. I really would because they're responsible for many, many people dying. And their goal, their stated goal, was to take away our revenue, to shrivel up our companies so we would be no more, and they would continue to lie and to spread their propaganda in tandem with the government, which again, Missouri versus Biden is leading the way there. And so we support this case and we want to work with this, these people so that we can also put down the legacy media liars who are causing great damage to the United States, to the inhabitants of the United States and to the world at large. And so we are going after big monetary damages and, um, Right now, the justice wheels are slowly moving, but they are moving. And so I'm working with um, uh, uh, Kristen Davis. She's our uh, publicist to reach uh, media channels so that people are aware of what we're doing. And by the way, you're talking about the Biden laptop. Kristen Davis was a brilliant publicist working for John, with uh, and for John Paul Mack. I've interviewed him. He's the guy that was, you know, he had the shop where the, the laptop was left. And... Um, you know, that guy's a great guy. He just, he tried to hand it in and nobody wanted to take it, of course. And so then Giuliani took it and they roasted him for breaking that. And Tucker, of course, was the one that helped to break the story with the New York Post. They did the cover story. And Kristen helped negotiate all those media uh, spots so that now we understand that it's not a scam. He's not a scammer. And he went after them to um, for damages because they really damaged and they threatened his his whole life, he had to flee to keep safe and to, to stay alive. And so this is what they do. They have no new tricks up their sleeves. So um, we want to do the same thing, uh, you know, support John Mack, support that truth, support this case, Missouri versus Biden, go after legacy media. And we need everybody listening to help us. We need everybody listening to spread this, this uh, space the link to this space, the recording when it's done. We need everybody to follow these speakers and to spread their work because together we will win. We will shut down the legacy media liars. We will shut them down and we will stop the lies and we will restore the truth and the information flow and save lives as a result. Thank you, Charlene. And it's, it's crazy that as you were saying that, I noticed down in the room listening, uh, Ernest Ramirez, he lost his son to the vaccine um, and I've spoken with him and he's been down in Washington um, on, I think it was Senator Ron Johnson's COVID-19 panels, um, taking questions and stuff like that. So, you know, we see you, Ernest, and, and we're fighting for your 
Boston specifically and many others that, you know, were it not for the censorship, censoring the work of, you know, Charlene and many others and doctors, he may have not have chosen a different option and not gone the route of vaccination and he'd still be here. So this is why it's so important that, um, you know, support people like Charlene as well, because they're truly fighting for justice for um, people like Ernest and his son. Wow, that is, you know, I just want to chime in here again. That is critically important. And Ernest, I'm so sorry. We've heard from so many people, um, especially with our film and the content around the vaccines. Um, you're right, Heather. If perhaps Ernest would have heard this information, they they could have made a, a different decision. And um, But remember, Ernest, this is not in vain. We lost seven close family members to the conventional cancer treatments. And as a result, there are countless people alive today because of the content and body of our work. And so let's work together to um, turn this around. And this is not in vain. The loss of our loved ones will um, result in many people um, hearing the truth and being alive as a result. And that's the beauty. It's beauty from ashes. You know, we have an ash heap of death and it's tragic, but it must stop. And with your help and, you know, anybody else on this space, leave a comment. I, I shared the, um, this space on my uh, The Truth About Vaccines Twitter account, TTAB official, I think is the, the thing. But I, I shared that. Leave your comment. If you have a vaccine injury or um, you've lost someone from the COVID shot or any kind of vaccine, let me know. I, I really we know so many people we want your voices to be heard we want to see pictures we want to share that because it's a real thing um these are real people and uh we want to honor you and we 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 want people to know this is not in vain we we must stop this it's it's a death squad really i mean pfizer knew what they were doing moderna knows what they're doing they call this an operating system on their website the 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 covid shot they, they, um, they know it's gene therapy. It's not a vaccine. And it's, it's taking the God expression and turning it into a satanic thing in our body, literally with the numbers. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And um, they knew that it wouldn't stop the spread. They knew this. They said this, that it would not stop the spread, that it wasn't safe. It was not effective. We were saying this from the beginning. They called us crazy. And then Pfizer themselves comes out and says the same thing. When they were cornered, they said, oh, yeah, well, no, it doesn't stop the spread. Why are we doing this? Do you know, if you look at VARES, some of the, li the listeners in this space may not know this. This is interesting. Go to the Open VARES report. VARES is Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And that was put in place in 1986 when our own government gave these vaccine manufacturers liability-free license to push out any vaccine they wanted to with no liability. So if you die from a vaccine, those companies don't have to pay the, the cost. They don't, they're liability free. So the, the money that anybody gains or wins in a court of law, which is almost like a kangaroo court, it's, it's money that is in a piggy bank uh, that is a tax taken from every vaccine that you buy. It's put into a piggy bank. So you're paying these families that have lost people or have adverse events. So from 1986 to right before COVID 20, 2020, all of the adverse events, all of the deaths from all of the vaccines, and we have 70 plus vaccines on the vaccine schedule is a little over 10,000. All of the adverse events up to that point was 
I think about a million and a half adverse events in total from all these years, from all of the vaccines. And so then when COVID, they started rolling out these shots from COVID, just within months, we had 10,000, 20,000. We're now up to, I think, almost 40,000 deaths, 30 some thousand deaths from this one vaccine that was given just over a year. And so it outnumbers all of the other vaccines by four times at least. And also, this is good to note that our own government told us that those numbers that they have collected are only maybe one to at most 10% of the real numbers because most people that have adverse events from these vaccines don't even know it. And the ones that are reported have to go through a lot to just get the reports in. And right now we have heard from so many patients and so many nurses that are heroes and doctors that in the system, when the patients come to the doctor and say, I think this was an adverse event from the COVID shot, they say, no, it wasn't. And they don't go through the proper channels to report. So we're only hearing a fraction of the real numbers. But we have all seen the videos of these sports players in the prime of their life out on the field dropping dead. Why? Because they've got myocarditis. And when you have myocarditis, which is caused by the shot, because this shot targets the heart, it targets the brain, and it targets the reproductive organs. If you've ever heard Naomi Wolf. I believe Ernest, Ernest, I believe your son was playing basketball. He was 16, if I'm not mistaken. And that's exactly what happened. Middle of playing playing sports um, in a large part. Yeah. And so that's exactly it. And so, Ernest, I want to hear from you. If you're here or tr- trash, is that you? I don't like calling yeah, you Yeah, we, trash. we, we might end here? up having another space about this, but I, 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 I'm probably going to close this down shortly. I, uh, I'm going on like four hours now, so <laughs> I probably need to wow. close this down. I want to add one more thing, two more things. Um, if you guys have not seen uh, Dr. David Martin's uh, presentation in Europe, I posted that in the nest and in the comments. That is a must watch about the history of COVID, uh, manufacturing, bioweapon, whatnot, and Dr. Fauci and the history of that. That is uh, pretty damning stuff. Um, lastly, I uh, just wanted to give a shout out to Mike Benz because he came in late, but we talked about a lot of the stuff. If you're not following Mike Benz, uh, Mike Benz has done an enormous amount of work uh, exposing CISA, the EIP, and this whole uh, censorship apparatus. And check out his uh, website, Freedom for Information. It's on his uh, link, but... Mike has done a ton of work on this. Um, it's just uh, wanted to put that out there. If if no one follows him, check him out. Thanks for yeah, the sure that. You By the follow... way, there's a lot more coming on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just gonna say, follow Trash and follow myself and all in Jennifer and all of the speakers on this panel because we got to stick together. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I and I do appreciate everybody here. Uh, appreciate everybody spoke today. Obviously, we this is the day two of covering the Missouri v. Biden case, and we've had a lot of uh, really, really, uh, really, really great speakers and uh, information that we've conveyed here. I'm probably going to go over the Twitter file supplemental tomorrow, um, so I can go through that and probably a couple other pieces. Uh, might even throw in the uh, Instagram Stanford Internet Observatory uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the pizza gate, I guess, is reopening for Instagram now. So I'm probably going to go through that with the Twitter file supplemental tomorrow. 
but uh, yeah, I'm going on four hours here. I could definitely use a break. I could definitely use some lunch. And I have another space this evening where I'm going to be going, talking with a lot of uh, people who are very much against Matt Walsh's movie, What is a Woman? I will be co-hosting with people that are very much against it and says it's hateful and bigoted and all these fun things. And I'm going to be in the lion's den with this one, but uh, I think it's an important conversation to have. So appreciate everybody being here. If my co-hosts or anybody on the panel wants to give any final words, I know that Charlene was able to let you guys get you guys informed, get you guys involved if you wanted to be. But I don't know if my co-hosts have anything that they want to share before we close down. No, just that it was a great space. So thank you, Trash. And I just want to say to Ernest, listening, um, I haven't forgotten the conversation we had about your son, and he's a driving force in the back of my mind. So keep fighting. We'll keep fighting. And again, great host great, or great space. <laughs> appreciate it. Much appreciated. Thank you. Jen, do you have any final Just ready to. Yeah, no, we're driving, guys. So just wanted to say, hey, thank you guys for being here in great space. Thanks to my host and co-hosts. Appreciate you guys and appreciate everybody for coming up and speaking. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate it. Thank you, Trash. Hey, thanks, Nate. The best. Yeah, man. Thank you, Trash. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. We'll see you guys tomorrow if you guys want.